Coming to you from the TLD studios in Temecula, California, it's the Whiskey Throttle Show, taking you deep inside the lives of the legends and leaders of our sport. This week's guest is brought to you by Yamaha, the leaders in the power sports industry. Motocross bikes, street bikes, adventure bikes, side-by-sides, quads, boats, generators. Yamaha sets the standard. Yamaha revs your heart. Method Race Wheels, the strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off-road. Method dominates the off-road market with wheels for your truck, sprinter, Jeep, or UTV. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle for 20% off your order. Troy Lee Designs, built for the world's fastest racers. TLD blends elite level protection with industry leading style and performance. Moto, bike, helmet paint, casual wear, whatever your passion, Troy Lee Designs is waiting for you on the next level. Nihilo Concepts, enhance your riding experience with superior products like the Start Stop Conversion Kit, Fuel Pet Cocks, Frame Grip Tape, Lever Grip, Grip Donuts, Secondary On Switch, Billet Foot Pegs, Billet Throttle Housings, and so much more. The Hilo Concepts produces exceptional products, all of which are made right here in America. And by SKDA. SKDA is the ultimate destination for exceptional motocross graphics, customer service, and artistic excellence. Trust them to elevate your ride and showcase your individuality on the track, making every ride an exceptional experience. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Whiskey Throttle Show. I'm your host, David Pingree, and we've got a guest today that I've been trying to get on for quite a while. Uh, our, our paths just hadn't connected for it, but uh, he finally said yes. Uh, it's, it's Moto Reporter, ESPN announcer, Desert Assassin frontman, Monster Energy Army member. It's Mr. Cameron Steele. Cam, thanks for coming on, buddy. Thanks, Dave. Stoked to be here. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, man, I, I was, as I kind of prepped for these shows, I know I'm going to enjoy it when I start seeing like things that I didn't know. And I found so many things about you that I'm like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I had no idea. I had no idea. So uh, even though like we were chatting, you and I go back a long ways from when you were doing the announcing at the races and stuff, there's a lot I don't know about you. So I'm stoked for this. <laughs> we probably go back to when I was racing, maybe. I don't know. What year was the first year you raced? 93. I did a couple. So I raced, the first year I raced was in 92. I raced through 97, so you probably didn't realize it, but I was one of those lappers out on the track that you guys were laughing at during the heat races <laughs> and the big bikes, but I always told McGrath that you can't be the greatest supercross rider of all time if you don't have people to lap, and I was that person. You played a big part. I'm the big Jeremy's, part in Jeremy's uh, yes, domination. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was me. I was there at the ultracross. Jeremy dominated. I was there at the supercross. Jeremy dominated. So I felt like I was a part of his championship. Look at you, just folding into his claim it. I love it. it. I love it. I was the, uh, I was the worst supercross rider probably that ever lived. But I was there and I was on the floor, uh, riding my dirt bike. So I'm pretty stoked to have that little tiny piece of history. Well, I remember you racing, but I don't remember seeing you. No, you wouldn't remember at supercross. I just don't. You know, I I don't remember a lot. You know, it's been it's been a while. That's a long time. I raced. But uh, you went ninety two to ninety seven. Okay. And you transitioned into freestyle at one point. Was that 97, 98 ish? Yeah. So I made, so I was riding waves for a living in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. We're going to cover all okay. of that. Okay. So I got tired of the judging aspect and I was ri- racing dirt bikes at like a junior level. So I wasn't even an intermediate. Turned pro, 
to race Supercross. <laughs> I swear to God, this is a true story. Race Supercross for those five or six years, whatever it was. And uh, I had kind of been wandering aimlessly. I actually ended up selling my bikes. I had been hurt quite a bit. And my buddy Don Burke is like, hey, you got to come check this out. Like, I think it was a Krusty's video. Okay. And uh, that, that along with my work at Gotcha International, which led me to the guys that were the X Games providers, all that kind of exploded all at the same time. Mm. Okay. There's a well, lot, lot to unpack there. There is. And we're going to go through it all chronologically. Okay. I just, uh, I did, that was another thing I didn't know about you. I didn't know you were a freestyle rider. Yeah. And the story of how you got into announcing, I think, is great. We'll get there. Uh, but we start all our shows with the Method Race Wheels front end chatter segment. If you guys are in the market for wheels for your truck, your van, your sprinter, side by side, whatever, check those guys out. The lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off road. And we get you 20% off. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle, 20% off whatever you order. Um, I, I would be remiss if I did not talk about your first love, which you just mentioned, which is sponging. Yes. Boogie boarding. Yep. Was your passion. Do it. And it's a lot like in the in the water sports world, it would be a lot like rollerblading. I think. I think in terms of just you know, I think it's fair assessment. I think <laughs> I think really, I think honestly, the early part of bodyboarding was really hardcore and really barrel driven. And when I was a budding professional in the mid '80s, it was a pretty like substantial but new sport. Yeah. And I think what happened was that the people that ran the marketing for some of the brands saw this like goody two shoes, apple pie, big smile. It's fun. It's easy. It's for the kids. And they marketed that way. And it just took on the softer and softer and softer demeanor. But what a lot of people don't realize is the bodyboarders pioneered some of the biggest slabs in the world, like the wave at Chopu in Tahiti at the end of the road. Uh, that was a bodyboard wave. Mm. Um, some of the slabs in Australia, bodyboard waves. Mm. So there is a lot of respect for bodyboarders in the waterman's industry, but I will agree with you that it was very mill-toast and yeah. it was definitely drugged down to the point where there really wasn't viable marketing. And the, it, it, the big marketing companies, in my opinion, ended up in, imploding the sport by not having enough personality in it. It's funny. But yes, I was a professional bodyboarder. It's funny though because and I bust your balls just because okay. I like I'll to. I'll take and, it. And I got to get you back for surfer cross somehow. Bring it. Um, but <clears throat> I, I boogie boarding's fun. When my kids were little, like they loved it. That's all mm -hmm. they wanted to do, right? And I do want to get some tips on how I keep my calves from cramping because that's my always my biggest problem. But I don't care what you're on if you're body surfing, boogie boarding, to paddle into those kind of waves. Dude, respect, because yeah. I'm not going out there, you know. So I appreciate it. I, I, I might jam you up. And I'll tell you this, low-key, let's not tell a lot of people, I like to rollerblade. Yeah. It's fun. I don't know why it's got such a shitty reputation. Yeah, no, it's I've a good never, time. I never inline, I never rode inline skates. Oh, okay. But, cool guy me now. No, no, no but I wasn't riding the ramps because I, I had grown up riding BMX bikes, and I didn't yeah. really skate that much either. So I rode BMX bikes on the vert ramps. And at one point, I had aspirations of becoming a professional BMX rider. But the bodyboarding kind of took over. I was getting paid to do it. And that was like my, the way I was going for that time. But uh, I think that um, all sports have a place. And of course, no matter what the sport is, someone's going to talk crap about it from another sport. Doesn't matter what. So some of them are a little easier to pick on. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that might have to do with the way it's portrayed media wise. But anything that's portrayed like, like football, no one makes fun of football. Right. Because everybody looks tough. 
and they're not just smiling with their hair comb perfectly all the time. And that's kind of what the the crack on bodyboarding was. Yeah, it's a shame because, like you said, it is accessible to anybody. For could sure. be in Waikiki, you could be a four year old and just roll in on the little ones. You yeah. know, no and problem. I, I was fortunate. I surfed in. Um, I call it surfing, surfing, riding waves, surfing. Uh, I competed at five or six pipeline contests, and uh, I believe was able to say I was the highest placing non-Hawaiian one time. Hmm. I never made the final, kind of like Supercross, <laughs> uh, but I did make the Constellation final. So there, there was five or six in the final, and then there was a, a yeah. Constellation final, five or six. So I made it to that once or twice, but I had a great time. It was beautiful. I mean, the bottom line was I was paid to ride waves and hang out at the beach. And right That's after, right, I mean, during high school, I was already professional at high school, and then that carried on until I just got fed up with the whole judging criteria. Yeah. Only to get back in it and be the judge later on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the judging, the judging, I think, at the freestyle also, at, I think, was fun for a while, but then it got a little bit more convoluted. But the judging at the surf contest was really tough. Yeah. I mean, every time I ride a wave at Surfer Cross, I'm like, that was a seven or eight. And I for look sure. in and it's like 0.9. And I'm like, what? And the commentator is <laughs> dogging you and talking crap the whole time, right? Um, that's my favorite announcing gig ever. Oh, it's the only gig I go to that I don't I don't even want to get paid for. I just come out to assail everybody. And you do. Yeah. Uh, you and Dan McGranahan are a formidable No duo. one escapes. No one. Yeah. yeah. And I, I always like, I'll be walking along the beach, and you guys are just throwing rocks at me verbally. And I'm like, God, I thought we were friends. And then I realize, okay, yeah. calm down. The They're more, the more <laughs> crap that we talk about you, the better friendship we have. Uh, that's great. Uh Second question here on this thing. What are your thoughts on X Games? Um, from a from a fan perspective, you stepped out of it. I know you're you're involved, so maybe it's a tough question to answer, really honestly. But the events that they're putting on now, <clears throat> the way that they're doing them, kind of the direction, the 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 features that they have, like I keep getting bummed out that they're pulling out like Supermoto. I thought that was such a cool event. And if it isn't that now, like why can't we find something else? Well, some of the events, I'm just like, really still this, huh? Not really a tough question for me to answer because I feel like as a reporter, as a personality for television, you got to talk straight, right? You got to tell it like it is. So I started my uh, walk with X Games in 98. I first did my uh, X Games uh, live announcing I did for an event, which became, hey, we should use this guy on the TV because there was no TV personality yet. And um, I had that opportunity come up for the 99 X Games. I had already commentated that 98 freestyle competition. And uh, I loved everything about X Games, and I still do. I think that X Games gave a platform for so many athletes oh, yeah. and companies and sports. And and I know that at the beginning, the extreme games, you know, kind of, uh, all right, whatever. Those of us in SoCal maybe thought it wasn't cool to say that. But really, when you think about what the X Games packaged and put together, is pretty stunning. And the one thing I do say, so you could go back and you could say, hey, mountain biking on the snow. Uh, maybe some people don't like <laughs> street skating. luge. Some people don't like street luge. But hey, street luge is gnarly. Yeah. If you've ever stood by the side of the course and see what these guys go through. Now, they were taking that WWE wrestler type of personality with it. And freestyle for some part took that, totally. that same yeah. thing. Travis was the good guy. Brian was the bad guy. You know, all these yeah. different things. But where I'm at with X Games now, I was there from 98 until I think 17 or 18 as a commentator. I might have missed a couple years in there, but for the most part, I've been with them. And my programs are now on World of X Games. Uh, our Ripped Cabo Dirt Bike Trip to Cabo and our Trail of Missions uh, 
truck and UTP trip are both on World of X Games. And I thought that X Games kind of lost its way for a little bit. Um, there was different production companies in there. Um, I think the sports ebbed and flowed a little bit. But what I was super stoked to see is what happened this year. I felt like they got back to the core roots of the best sports, the skating, the BMX, and the freestyle moto. Those are those are cornerstone sports that are impressive to watch, and the athletes have led their group for all these years, right? I think it's I think it's just perfect fitment. And I watched some of the contest I hadn't watched in a couple of years, like really watched. Their social media game was up. I sent a message to the people I work at World of X Games, and I told them I thought it was incredible effort. And I'm not just giving verbal diarrhea. If I didn't like it, I'd tell you. And there was a couple years where I was like a little unsure about it. You know, I didn't. I, when I was exited, um, I felt like there were, there was a little bit of lost path in there. But well, and they crap. lost me during that window. Yeah, kind of, I don't know what the year was, but it's around when you're talking about. It, and I kind of lo- I stopped watching it. Yeah, and then I ca- I did catch some highlights this year. The best trick on the dirt dirt jumping where oh, the guy yeah. did a he flipped his bike. Our Willie, yeah, and then he grabbed the bike and did a flip with it. Insane. Dude, I lost Insane. my mind. Insane. Well, I got the, goosebumps just thinking about it. Right I know, now. me too. I just was thinking about those moments at freestyle history, right? Like Travis doing the double back and um, some of the other things that I not only got to witness but I got to call. You know, I got to. Did inter- you called his double? Back I did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Tess actually, Tess Sewell, who's my announcing partner, actually took the lead on it. Um, he kind of ran me over in a couple times <laughs> on announcing, but he always had great lines. Like I wasn't like the one liner guy. Like his line that's on that double backflip is, uh, "How can you find the Holy Grail more than one time in this building or something like that?" Travis achieved that. Yeah. And. Um, and kudos to Travis, by the way, he got inducted into the AMA yeah. Motor- the Motorcycle Hall of Fame, which I think is well-deserved. Um, but um, I have chills still from all the things that I saw at X Games. And I think that getting back to those roots, getting back to your question, I think X Games nailed it this year. If they keep building on that, I think X Games will explode again. Yeah. I really believe it's it's all about the packaging. And they brought back um, Salema. They brought back Tony Hawk. Um, they brought back Jason. I brought back these personalities, right? I I don't think all the announcers have to be from the days gone by, but I think if they bring some of those commentators back, it gives that roots, right? When I was at Gotcha, one of the things we we did is we were trying to reconnect with the surf shops. We came up with a a concept from the roots up. Because if if you don't have your roots, the tree falls over, Mm. right? So you got to keep the tentacles. And I think X Games did a great job reaching back into that vault of personalities getting the sports that were solid and making it all happen. I love the venue of Ventura. So pretty. And, and it's not like a big city hub. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I like that they got out of big city. You know, I went to Minneapolis a couple of years. It was tough. It was good, but it was tough, you know? Yeah. It's definitely tough. Um, not that Minneapolis is a bad place. It was wonderful, but it's just tough to be in this giant 80,000 person building, you know, with the, the sports that you want to be in, yeah. in my opinion. I liked the more personal format, but I also liked uh, the Circuit of America as well. I thought that was a good venue. The outdoor, the vibe, the personality of it, I thought was really good. Maybe it was just the personality of the venues at Minneapolis didn't work for me. But um, yeah, one of the cool things about X Games, I did get to introduce Metallica playing the national anthem at the Circuit of America. Oh, really? Live on ABC, I believe it was. Yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cool moment. Yeah. I tried. I worked hard on uh, introducing Kiss last week at the 
uh, Crandon World Cup. I went out there to announce for the Red Bull event part okay. of it, and uh, Kiss was playing. And I'm like, hey, you know, I've been a Kiss fan since I was nine. It was the first concert I went to, and I was ready to do the introduction. But the senior commentator on the group also had the same uh, feeling. So Ralph Shaheen introduced Ralph, Kiss. Yeah, Ralph's an old 80s rocker, huh? Yeah, I, I wanted to put him in a chokehold when I heard he was going to do that, but... <laughs> I let him slide. How did how did Kiss look? Rough. That's really what I was gonna rough, say. Yeah. I don't no amount of makeups covering that up. This well, I, I I give them great kudos for being able to define themselves as these characters and come back and and year after year and be able to do it. For a while, they weren't doing it. <clears throat> I went back in two thousand or whatever it was when they did the put the makeup back on the first time, and I thought it was an amazing show. Really? Uh, yeah, I really did. But. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I had four walls in my room and every wall was all kiss. Really? Trash so cans. Legit. Were, oh, I was all in. It was, I mean, huge. I can't believe I didn't keep the ticket stub from the concert. I think it was 1977 at the forum set nine years old, uh, obstructed seating. I'll never forget. It said obstructed view on <laughs> there. I was, I was behind the pillar. <laughs> swear. I no lie. Um, but those it, were the tickets you got. Yeah, but they, I thought they put on a pretty good show. You know, being out in the open out there, it's hard to have your your presence is full, and I think your audio is a little tough. I think I was at Metallica a couple weeks ago. I thought that the audio inside and, uh, I was tough. Oh, really? I thought so. I mean, it's a, it sounds just a little hollow in such a big space. Yeah, I thought Metallica put on a great show. Like I've kind of gone like this with Metallica, right? Like I, one of my favorite albums of all time is Injustice for All. It came out in '87. And then I kind of lost touch with it. And then I went to a, a show way back then. And I was like, ah, oh, they're not that, they didn't, weren't that good. They mm. played in Palm Avenue in San Diego. Mm. I used to ride dirt bikes there. I'm like, I'm yeah. going to go see the show. Right. It was like, eh, whatever. And, uh, and then I saw him again and I was like, I saw him at forum once. I'm like, eh. but then I saw him at circuits of the America and holy cow, they blew my mind. I was like, wow. And so that's kind of where it, I was at it's this just time. the sound setup. And the- I think some of it's just the sound setup. It's the day you hit the, the venue too. Like, I think everybody, like if you announce four months in a row every other day or three times a week, eventually you're going to have a show where you're like, kind of like, eh, whatever you're Going through the motions. Just going through the motions. Voice doesn't sound that good. Right. Or you, or you sang too hard two nights before and you have laryngitis or, you know, your finger hurts from playing the bass. I think everybody has those days. So every once in a while, you're going to hit a performer, an announcer, an athlete, it all happens, right? Everybody has that off weekend or off time. So I think sometimes you just hit them at the wrong time. But the last two Metallica shows I saw were on point. Although, I, like I said, it was a little hollow sounding in SoFi, but that wasn't Metallica. With Metallica, too, you never know if they were out partying, you know, like uh, sound like Gary Busey after Mardi Gras or something. Yeah, some of those there. guys, they don't do that anymore. They don't even drink. Anymore. No? No. Uh-uh. <clears throat> let, me ask, let me go off on a little tangent here since okay. we're talking music. Okay. I have this argument all the time with my buddies that rock and roll is dead. And I say, I challenge them, give me a band that, that came out 2005 or newer that's worth worth a squat. Avenged Sevenfold. I don't know what year they came out, but I'm, I think they're pretty new. And I think that they have some, I don't, I, and, I don't know what they look like. I've never seen a show. I've never seen a video, but they rock hard. If you listen to the songs, okay. it's pretty hardcore. Somebody back there, look it up. Some, there's a whole bunch of... If you guys didn't know, the Whiskey Thrall Show, they got like 40 guys over here watching us the whole we time. We have a big staff. We it's really huge. work hard. At bringing so you somebody guys. over there, the status, whoever the statistician is over there, you guys look that up for us. And, and so, all right, I'll give okay, you Okay, maybe rock and roll is dead a little I'll bit. I'll give you that. And I don't know, I, I, I would contend they're older than that, but we'll see. Okay. Um, 
but I'm talking like ago, almost, you know. I'm talking about go back to the 60s, 70s, yeah. right? Like Zeppelin and the Doors, and then the 80s. Think of how many awesome 80s rock bands we had. Mm-hmm. I mean, crazy, right? The 90s went to like grunge, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, sure, Slayer, Megadeth, and then we hit Talica. 2000s, and it's like, what? I mean, I really like Volbeat. I really like... Um, I like Volbeat. Yeah. It formed in 1999 in Huntington Beach, California. All right, so I'm wrong. So after 2005, I don't have anything for you. But I never... I Greta Van Fleet. Greta Van Fleet's good, but are, they're not Metallica level. Yeah. I'm talking like... Well, I think, you, I think it's band. relative too, right? You can tell that there isn't any giant new rock acts because all you hear on the rock stations is old rock. Yeah. And you can listen to... Even when you listen to the kids mixing whatever it is, their Instagram or TikTok or whatever, it's like you still hear the ACDC. Yeah. You still hear these like big booming sound bands that are from our era, arguably. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that. Hell saw, yeah, brother. Oh, yeah. We, we, lived in, we lived in the good era. I, I, I saw something the other day that the Gen X is the only generation that became 30 when they were 10 and are still acting like they're 30 when they're 50. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where I saw that, but. I, I I feel I can feel that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I would say hip hop, same thing. I used to listen to the Fat Boys and Run DMC and you know, all the way through the eighties, the nineties, great hip hop. And then since then, maybe Drake, you could say is there's there's some good ones, but sure. like when I listen to what my girls will put on, I'm like, this is trash. I can't well, even I'm like, I can't even understand what he's saying. They used to actually tell a story or be funny or be witty something well i think the one thing that's gone with uh you could argue it both ways but there's so much media nowadays that it's diluted it right and it's made it hard for people to make an impact like if you go back to when there was only whatever eight channels and abc had the biggest sporting events in the world and evil knievel was three of the top 10 sporting events of all time yeah muhammad ali was probably three of them also and evil knievel was a household name now you have all this delusion of all this different stuff. And mm-hmm. I think you've lost touch. I think you could even argue that when MTV played music videos, people could connect with those athletes and those personalities or whatever it was. Now it's like they don't even play music videos. I think it's just, I think it's, no. it's like everybody's listening to it on Spotify or whatever, and they don't get that connection. I don't think the athlete, I don't think the musicians are resonating like they did back in those days, unless you're Taylor Swift, who I went to her show and she kicked the crap out of it. it yeah, was awesome. I took my daughter, and I was uh, I was really blown away by her effort. I don't know if you've ever seen her. I don't not, know if you're a fan like... or not. I'm not a fan. I don't really know. My daughter's like, you need to learn to be able to sing a couple songs. Um, <laughs> I have been wearing my bracelets, but I took them off. Um, but she puts on a heck of a show, and she yeah. really connects with her audience. And I think that's some of that's what's missing with today's rock and roll or the new new bands or whatever. Maybe mm. I don't know. It's uh, funny they're having this giant festival, right, out in Indio. Yeah. And it's all bands that are 30 or 40 years old. I'm telling you, the only genre that actually has good new acts coming through is country. Morgan Wallen, Chris Stapleton, uh, even this new Oliver Anthony guy that just exploded on. Like, They're connecting with people. Sure. And, and maybe, to me, those guys all feel like throwbacks. Mm-hmm. Their music is very traditional country. It's yeah. not like the shiny shirt, you know poppy country that's kind of been coming through so anyway i'm way off on a rabbit hole but i just wanted to pick yeah. your brain well it's hard it. for me to believe that Avenged seven holds 25 years old already i'm telling you dude that's crazy that's crazy stat right there yeah yeah well wikipedia just shut us can't down. argue with it 
Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to move on to your show here. Let's get started. If you guys haven't been over to whiskeythrottlemedia.com, go check us out. All kinds of pro uh, products over there from bike testing, uh, new bike introductions, project bikes. We've got interviews, podcasts. There's all kinds of stuff to check out. Merch. We've got a forum over there. But let's get to our guest story. It's brought to you by Yamaha. Cameron, tell me about where you grew up. Uh, I was born in San Francisco, little known fact. I didn't live there very long, but, uh, do you know what famous supercross rider was born in San Francisco also? Okay. Let me think about that. Let's come back to that. But I, uh, I jumped around. I, when I was young, I moved, uh, with my parents, obviously. And by the time I was five years old, I had lived in, uh, Manhattan beach, Redondo beach, uh, and then to Huntington beach. Okay. Found my way to Laguna Hills. And by the time 1979 rolled around, I was living in San Clemente and have never left. So I've been there for over 40 years. Why did you uh, move so much? Um, my dad was a car salesman. Okay. And uh, he ran dealerships. He was a GSM or GM. He was selling cars actually when I was born. And what my parents were doing in San Francisco in the late 60s is questionable for sure. <laughs> um, but No, uh, it's not. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, exactly. We know what they're doing, right? <laughs> Uh, but they, my dad wanted to live by the beach. My dad wanted to be an actor. He actually, uh, ran around with Dennis Hopper and a couple other pretty famous oh, really? actors. He tried out for a number of parts, um, got some callbacks, but never, never had that breakthrough performance. So, uh, he really wanted to be a Hollywood guy. That was something I, I still have like his, um, I think they called them Z cards, his pictures like yeah. that he would take in and show his portfolio of his different looks with the cowboy hat and all this different stuff. But yeah, so I grew up in San Clemente. I've been there since I was in junior high school. Uh, I call it home. I'm never leaving. My kids are growing up there. Uh, it's a surf town. It's a, it's one of the most successful surf towns in the world. It also is a crazy moto metropolis. Some pretty famous dirt bikers have come out of there, including Johnny Campbell, 11th time Ball 1000 winner, Ray Soma, who's a factory Honda rider and a factory test rider. I think he was like top three in the 500s. Craig Kanoi, who's won Supercross. Uh, Trigger Gum, long distance world record holder, one of my brothers who's passed away. Um, but there's a lot of famous dirt bikers and a lot of energy for dirt in San Clemente. And I think that's because, you know, Camp Pendleton is right behind us and also the TRW testing facility. Mm -hmm. um, and so the hills were just kind of wide open and we rode a ton of dirt bikes. So San Clemente's home to answer your question. And uh, yeah, it's a spectacular place. Who is the San Francisco guy? Jeremy McGrath. Really? Yeah. MC was born in San Francisco also. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, he's slightly younger than me. I think he's born two years later than me, maybe. Hmm. So we have that kinship. So what was, uh, how much has San Clemente changed from when you were in junior high to now? Uh, well, we had about 18,000 people living there. We had dirt biking right on the beach, basically right on the coast. It wasn't legal, but no one really got arrested. Got chased a little bit, maybe. Um and now it's about 75,000 people. The hills mm -hmm. behind us that we used to ride in are, are filled with houses. How it's changed is it's, um, I think it's become more of a, uh, there's like, there's a, still that surf town vibe, but there's also like that kind of like inner non-coastal vibe in the back. And, and those worlds collide a little bit, not negatively. I think it helps some people get to the beach and helps some people feel like it's a little bit more of an upscale town. Um, but it's changed for sure. There's definitely more restaurants. I, I had like a, <laughs> I had a, a steak salad on Del Mar. Del Mar is like our main street. Yeah. Our, our town was founded by a guy named Ole Hansen and he had, he had the idea to keep all the natural dirt roads, turn them into streets. And so it's the most confusing town in the world to drive around with because it's none like of the grid, streets, it's just... there's no grid. It's all kind of 
interweaved all the way through the hills. It's crazy. And so uh, that was part of its personality. But now we have some actual restaurants on Del Mar Street, which is crazy. And the El Camino Real, which is the royal road that the Spaniards founded, starting in Loretto and running through Northern California. Um, it was the path that was taken to make all the missions. Mm. So there's a mission in San Juan Capistrano right behind my house. And the El Camino Real runs right through our neighborhood. Oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. People don't always, a lot of kids don't learn that the mission trail started in Mexico. They learned that it started in San Diego, but, uh, the, the Padre, um, now his name's going to escape my name and my head. Um, Sarah founded the San Juan mission. He's super famous for that, but he also found a mission in Baja that no one is the last Dominican mission founded in Baja. Uh -huh. so, anyway, I spent a lot, Mexico I spent a lot of time in Mexico. <laughs> We'll get there, but I, I did learn that about you. This You really love Mexico. I really do. Um, the people are amazing. It's funny listening to your story about that really echoes like my experience here in Temecula. I mm -hmm. moved here in 94, and you remember we go right yeah, off the I said right. I said right when we drove up, I'm like, oh, you live on the hills we used to ride on. And you're like, not really. This house has been here longer. Yeah, that's sacrilegious. I did. I did for a while. Yeah. But all of those, you know, when I moved in here, I don't know what the population is, but it's 10, 20 times, right? Right, yeah. And uh, that was the first thing. As it's grown, you kind of go, oh, we kind of lost our vibe a little bit. You know, it gets influenced by other people, good and bad. But I'm like, hey, well, we got a lot of restaurants though right here. Like, it's yeah. the same stuff, right? Yeah, I, I feel bad for the, the Temecula losing its touch with a original vibe. I know they still have Old Town Temecula down there. But that moto culture that was so strong here, I, I really think that, Riverside and Temecula both could have done a better job embracing their champions yeah. and their moto history because I think that's a part of this. Like, what is Temecula famous for? Like, what's what's one of the things Riverside's famous for? I mean, there are some things, but, I mean, Jeff Emig is from Riverside. He's a, he's a multi-time AMA champion. It's horses and dirt bikes and the Butterfield stage, which is another thing that we have in common, right? The Butterfield stage yep. uh, was where people came through this way on, on horseback. and. Yep. Yeah, you're right. They don't. And, and San we used Clemente's... to ride dirt bikes right here at California Oaks when yeah. I was a kid. Oh, know? yeah, dude. This was testing grounds. I mean, Mecca. Uh, right, right over off Clinton Keith, remember? That was yeah. A, a ton response. of the freestyle videos were shot right here. I mean, yeah. some of the infamous shots of Brian Manley and Larry and them jumping over the house. The house. is right here on the freeway. Yeah. Clinton Keith, maybe that way. Yeah, that's wild, man. Um, I'm sure all the all the small towns that had that flavor and vibe, it attracted people there and it changes it, right? Yeah. It's that's it is what it's it just evolution it's evolution yeah um but and plus feel, we're getting older and more grumpy about it so yeah. then we have more no as soon as we're done i'm gonna go yell at the clouds and yeah try to see if there's any kids out there i can scream at um but it, it does change it dilutes but i feel like san clemente i mean you're right on the water so it's hard not to but you guys have held on to that surf culture where here like you said the moto thing is like You'll still see bikes around, but it's right. It's not the same. Not the same, man. Yeah, because you guys can still surf. Well, what, we got to drive to go ride now. We're funny we used to just roll out of. It's the funny thing. you mentioned that because, uh, you know, recently a kid named Griffin Cole Pinto um, has really risen to to huge success in the world tour, and the world championship surfing tour ends in San Clemente. They take the five best women, five best men, and they surf off until they have a champion. And uh, and Griffin Cole Pinto like there's a huge resurgence of Stoke in our town. Mm. And like, I have my red Griffin Cole Pinto shirt. I don't wear red shirts, yeah. but I, I wore it. I went to the beach. I wore my American flag shirt. 
I was there waving the American flag. I mean, the energy was massive. This is just last week. Yeah, I saw all this stuff. I, I, was, I did, had never heard his name. Yeah, and I started. Insane. He's only 23 years old, but our, our town has this rich history. All these pros came from San Clemente, you know, whether it's Dino and Dino, Matt Archibald, Christian. Doesn't Kalani Fletcher. live there too? Uh, Kalani does live there, and Kolohe and Dino lives there. But tons of world tour talent. Now Felipe Toledo, who's a two-time world champion from Brazil, he's lived in San Clemente for the last six years. Mm. So San Clemente is definitely a hotbed for surf talent. And surf culture, they just uh, celebrated the surf culture. First time ever they did a, a Shapers Hall of Fame down on what they call the Surf Ghetto, which is where all the surf builders are yeah. on Los Molinos and San Clemente. And actually two guys that shape boards for me growing up, I did surf too. I know I got called out to be a bodyboarder, but <laughs> I surfed on Midget Smith's boards and I surfed on uh, Randy Slade's boards who both passed away, but they were both inducted. Terry Senna was also inducted, who was a big part of the Hobie culture. I surfed on his boards also. I didn't, I don't know Terry, but I knew uh, Midget and mm -hmm. Randy. So yeah, the, the connection to the surf and the culture is huge. And, uh, you know, little known fact is I helped to produce the TV show for the 2000 World Tour event at Trestles. Oh, really? Yeah, I was behind the scenes. And I did a lot of the writing and organization and, and set up the interviews and stuff. Uh, when it was at, uh, it wasn't, it was at Amped Mobile then, I think. Huh. Boost Mobile. Boost Mobile. Boost Mobile Pro. That was after the whole gotcha thing. Then Boost Mobile came on and they were into content on the phones. So mm -hmm. first I worked for obviously ESPN this whole 25 years. And then I worked for um, Blue Torch inside of their content play. Then I moved on to Boost and then Amped Mobile for their content plays. Mm. And Amped Mobile still doing it huge in Australia. Are they? Yeah. Do you know the story with uh, Randy Slay and Jeff Blackmore? Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear this story? No. So Jeff... Uh, who owns the Blackmore Ranch, you know, big yeah. moto facility around here. And he's now very successful in um, grading and construction, mm -hmm. right? Well, he was a pro surfer when he was a grum and uh, couldn't afford boards, was like struggling. And Randy Slay said, I'll hook you up, dude. I have no worries. And hooked, like paid for his entries, like dialed him. Yeah. So all these years go by and um, uh, Randy Slay has passed away, right? So his son, Josh... Who were awesome yeah. pro surfer, does surfer cross, three-time surfer cross champ. Uh, anyway, Jeff finds one of his dad's boards, mm -hmm. uh, and they they realize, like, oh, shit, your dad helped me. So now he tells Josh, whatever you need, I'm going to buy you bikes. We're going to surfer. And if you, he's like yeah. a factory rider when he yeah. shows up at surfer cross because of Jeff. So, like, yeah. just really cool synergy there. Um, I wanted to ask you something. I'm going off on a tangent again, but I don't care. Tangents it's my again. show. Bring it, yeah. Culture. Uh, I would never go to the track, right? Like my local track, let's say it's Paris or Fox Race or something. And if, and, and like yell at someone to get off the track, you're in my way. This I'm, this is my track. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Um, I just wouldn't do that. You know, you, I don't know. It seems like not even something I'd consider, yeah. right? Are you going towards surfing now? So we're going to, yeah, dude. So the first time I got into surfing 20 years ago and was not, you know, learning, and uh, I said, oh, I, I hear trestles is badass. Let's go check it out. And I got my longboard, nine-footer. I'm marching down the two-mile walk to trestles. Right. And there's this other group in front of us. And I get called a kook by this girl. And I'm like, I don't even know you. What are you talking about? Like, right. Probably just because I had a longboard. I don't know. So we get out there. And it's not big. Chest, shoulder high. Like, nice little waves for me. And I'm out in the lineup with this guy. And it's splitting right. It's peeking right between us. So I'm like, oh, cool. I'll go right. He can go left. Well, he goes right, mm -hmm. and he's on a shoreboard, and he catches me. And right as I'm kicking out of this wave, he grabs my leash and yanks me off my board. 
and I'm trying to figure out what happened. I'm like, and this guy looks over at me and like, just kind of mean bugs me. And I'm like, thanks dude. I, you know, I was trying to get off my board anyway, you know, made some comment, but like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> I hate that about the surf culture. Yeah. I would say that a lot of that has dissipated. It's a much more friendly atmosphere. Um, when I was growing up, I surfed at the pier. I was a pier rat and, uh, we didn't even go to T street, which is one beach down. It wasn't that there was any like violence or fighting or anything. It just, you didn't leave your spot, right? Your mm -hmm. spot was your spot. And you knew all 20, 40, whatever number of guys that surf there regularly. And, uh, I think there's a lot of localism. Um, some of that was bred into by the media and the movies, I think, um, you know, each spot's like point you know, break, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't, there's, uh, was it on Dora's wall that says go home on one side or yeah. something? I don't know what it was. You know, the rules of kook. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> North shore definitely, uh, proliferated that vibe for sure. But I think that it's just something, you know, it's like, this is where I surf every day. Then all of a sudden the waves are going to be good and everybody's going to show up. It's like the track is generally the same every day. So I guess it's not kind of the same, same thing, but I, I get it. I've been there. I, you know, everybody's been in a hassle on the water. Um, it's, you know, one thing I always said when I quit bodyboarding is that the triple is always the triple. Mm. It's always six feet and overhead, mm. but the waves are never six feet and overhead. And the one day it is, it's just jammed with people. Yeah, I get it. So maybe. I, I don't know. I don't play into it. I don't even... I try not to be competitive, but I always was. I have to be, admit that. Um, and when it was firing at my local spot, uh, you know, I was... You was, shouted at some people once I, Maybe. <laughs> I just... It just sucks because when I surf, like, it's such a relaxing... It is. Like, it's like I'm out there just smiling. It's like a zen thing, It right? is, man. My three-year-old came up to me last night. She's like, sit here like this, go like this. I'm like... Where did you learn that? She's like, at preschool. Like, <laughs> what kind of school you got her in, bud? It's like a hippie school. <laughs> it's definitely a play, play learning, so yeah. I'm not sure. No, I'm just teasing. I, I just, it bums me out when I'm out there and I'm just... Want to have fun. Yeah, I'm just chilling. I'm like enjoying it. You know, you know what you need to do is you need to come with us to Baja because there's so many spots and there's no one surfing. As long as you get south of, of the main part, like above Ensenada, everything below, there's almost no one out except for like a couple of those big breaks. And, and we go down there and we find empty waves all the time by ourselves mm -hmm. and just doesn't have to be great. It's just fun. We're, you know, we're either in the trucks with the boards in the back or we have the boards on the trailer we're moto in because we host, um, like seven trips a year in Baja. So we see yeah. a lot of surf down. I'm there. coming with you one this year. All right. Oh, it's on our list. All right. Rip to Cabo. It's going to be that the October one? next year. That's the big one. That's the monster energy one that's on ESPN. Every okay. Day. Um, Okay, so we got to get back on track here. We've Go. gone way off the rails. I'm here. You, you ask the questions, so, I will answer. So when were you? When did you get into moto? Uh, I got into moto, so I was actually thinking about that this morning at 3 a.m. when I woke up. I was supposed to be thinking Halloween decorations today, but I was kind of thinking you were going to ask this question. So I, <laughs> I, had to, I had to think of my earliest memory of my moto. So I was living in Huntington Beach on Greystone Lane across the street from Haas Elementary where I went. I was either in first or second grade, and I don't remember riding but I remember starting my motorcycle to show my friends in the garage and started it in gear and it took off and rammed into like a desk and all these cabinets in my garage. And I was super worried that my dad was going to find out that I had started my motorcycle by myself and, and smashed it into the whole garage. And so that would have been like five or six years old. Okay. The real first time I can remember riding, I was living in Laguna Hills 
Um, it was right off of Alicia Parkway. So if you're coming down the five freeway, you go past El Toro Road where the mall used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, that mall was there. And on the right side, there's a there's like a riverbed there. And right next to the riverbed, there's like a small hill. And that hill that you can still see today is where in third, fourth grade, I learned to ride dirt bikes. And really, that's the first place I can remember riding. Of course, I can remember going to Saddleback and Escape Country because those were my local tracks. The first place I got hurt on a dirt bike, I can remember that really clearly. I was probably somewhere around eight or nine and crashed my, I think it was an 80, double shock back at Escape Country. Okay. Like, you Escape know, was it Orange County? It was Orange County. So uh, Saddleback was up on the mountain. And then if you came south, there's Tribuco Canyon, yeah. where the river is, yeah. uh, Holy Jim Canyon. Yeah. Well, back in the day where that snakes up the hill or used to snake up the hill, Escape Country was right on top. And that's all houses now. And so I really, we rode Escape Country a lot because they didn't host races or it didn't seem to be the race place. Saddleback was the race yeah. place. So uh, we would go to Escape Country to ride mostly. We'd go to Saddleback to race cars. They used to have car races in the in the 80s there, mm. uh, 70s and 80s, uh, off-road cars. And I actually was sitting next to someone who had a tire roll like a mile down the hill and land on him. And I was telling that story. 50 years later, 45 years later, the guy was standing two people away from me and heard me telling the story. He goes, hey. That was me. That was me. You didn't know him back then? No. Come on. I don't, no, I swear to God. It didn't this kill just him? just happened. Didn't kill him. I thought it killed him. <clears throat> didn't kill him. But a big, a buggy tire, like a 32-inch tire. Ruined his day. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it bounced down the hill and across. There used to be a giant flat track in the middle of Saddleback. You probably don't remember that. I, and I it never bounced got to all go. the way across and hit him in the stand. Bounced up the other hill and into the stands and hit him. While my dad was out racing. This guy must have terrible reaction time. This thing. He had like... I saw it coming a mile <laughs> away and I was like eight or whatever. But 45 yeah. five seconds of watching it come right Yeah, out. so I drive by Saddleback all the time on the toll road. And you can still see the rain ruts from some of the tracks because uh, Saddleback Park used to actually go across what is today's 241 toll road. Oh, really? And, yeah, well, the, the main part of the track is where the exit is across from the, like the, the sheriff has a helipad up there. Across from there, there's a dump up there and uh, the track was down in that, in that gully in there. But you used to be able to drive past the track on this big graded road and go down and down the backside. Mm -hmm. And there was what they called the junior track maybe. And they had a little flat track and a BMX park. And you could BMX track. Hmm. And the BMX track was gnarly. This huge drop down in the BMX track. But everything about Saddleback was gnarly because it was so vertical. It's like people that have never ridden Beaumont before, but they ride dirt bikes and they're good dirt bike riders. You take them to Beaumont and they're like, holy shit, this is so gnarly. Yeah. Because it's like, it's like vertical everywhere, yeah. right? And all of us that ride there, you included, it's like you'll be riding a spine you go, and drop off. Then you try to climb the other side. And everybody that doesn't do that is like, this is insane. Yeah. But that's how Saddleback felt. It was just like these huge peaks. Like I was a little kid and I still remember when it closed. Um, I was in high school then. Um, really sad time. But that's that's how I grew up riding and I raced. Uh, I did never raced on the big track at Saddleback, but I did ride the track that had the giant double uphill. Um, the Magoo Double? I'm not sure which it was called. Yeah, the big one. Yeah. And um, I rode the track, but I never raced it. I remember vividly the picket fence all the way around the track it had like this little wood slat fence like it was a like a half chain link with this wood yep. slats all the way around it i it totally look good like the photos the dirt looks garbage and it's rocky i just don't think they had the technology to till the tracks yeah. back then like i always say like there i always see these carlsbad reunion um 
posts. Yeah, there's one coming up. I there is one coming up. That's what made me think about it. But I, I was telling someone the other day, I'm like, I rode I rode Carlsbad all the time. We went there and raced all the time. I got a great story to tell about racing the intermediate class against uh, Damon. Uh, Huffman? Huffman. My brother raced the first moto. I raced the second moto because he was so good. We tried to have a fresh rider to try to beat him. <laughs> um, but we just, I rode my brother's gear. I told Damon the story. He was laughing his ass yeah. off. But anyway, Carlsbad had the crappiest dirt ever oh, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It was like concrete. Well, it was amazing for about an hour. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe an hour. Maybe if you got on the first practice. And I'll never forget, we used to race the Carlsbad Grand Prix, and I swear they never, or the Christmas Grand Prix, I swear they never groomed the track. No. It was like riding on concrete. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I'm sad to see it go, man. I, I think that, again, um, progress I understand. Selling the land I understand. All these buildings, I get it. But, you know, some of these counties and cities, they have to hold on to their culture a little bit. And if there was a motocross track in Carlsbad still, to be fitment with all of that dog shit that they built, it would be epic. It would be epic. Even if you could only ride it two hours a week, it would be an epic piece of their history. They should have kept the drag strip. They should have, but you know, it's like Orange County International Raceway. I used to ride at OCIR. Gone. I know it's, sadly, the dollar. Dollar rules. Dollar rules. Sell the property. Yeah. It's going to keep happening. Never be poor if you own real estate. I know. It's a good point. But I didn't adhere to that. No, I didn't either. Uh, I was just coming back. My girls had soccer in Aliso Viejo yesterday, so I was on the 241. And every time I drive it, I look for where the track was because people say, "Oh, you can still see you the stars." You can't see the main track. You if you get if you get off and go park where the entrance used to be. True story. Ron Turner used to run that. He was a speedway guy from uh, Orange County, um, and I was Taylor. Sorry, Ron Taylor. Uh, I used to date his daughter. And uh, he used to run the front gate up there. But if you walk up past that front gate, you can still go back and you can still see the track. Someone did, I think it was uh, Davey at Racer X or those guys did a piece on walking the yeah. old track there. Yeah. It's still there. I mean, I heard rumors in like the early 2000s or late 90s that Stu Peters was going to try to reopen it and that it was, they could do it, but they couldn't get the insurance done. I mean, insurance is just dog shit for everybody, you know? Yeah. Inherently dangerous sports. That's what happened. I think skateboarding, got classified as this inherently dangerous sport. All of a sudden, they can have skate parks everywhere. Let's just, I mean, if you ride a dirt bike, you're an idiot. It's yeah. dangerous. Okay. That's it. I know. I, I wish the, we could have a waiver that was ironclad that that, it, that if you sign this, you're releasing yeah, all rights yeah, yeah. to sue, right? And Our that, waiver says you're a dumbass right in it. But in California, anyway, you cannot give up all your rights. Yeah. You always have a right to sue, yeah. which... It's, it's part of our political machine, which we shouldn't get into. Let's but not. Let's, let's, not, not, let's not, not get yeah, into that. Yeah, but yeah. legislature, the attorneys, the bus chasers, the ambulance chasers, whatever. It's just, it's a crappy way to live, man. Yeah. We didn't live like that. And that's one of the reasons I love Mexico. Because they live with the, they live with it. I mean, yes, there's probably all that. But they live with the respect of each other, right? If you break down on the side of the road, someone's going to stop and help you. Mm. And if you see someone broken down, you can probably stop and help them. They're, most of them aren't carrying weapons or, or mean or whatever, which most people in the United States aren't either. But it's a concrete jungle up here. Down there, there's still beaches and mountains and open space. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Tijuana has tons of people. Ensenada has tons of people. But for the most part, Baja is... This, and those people are amazing. Driving through Tijuana, you wave at people. Everybody waves at you. Really? Hell yes. And, and every country is with its own problems, right? Sure, there's problems. 
Um, but man, the people, they just don't have, they have a different cultural vibe. Uh, one thing is they haven't crapped on the religion, which I think here in the States, everybody's like tried to shield everybody from religion. Um, I'm a Christian, I believe. And in New Mexico, there's a lot of Catholics, they believe. And I think that that's part of the grounding, right? But also they take care of their neighbors. They talk to each other. They treat each other with respect. And no one judges each other for pity reasons, right? And no one has to feel the need to be so outspoken and bold that it upsets everybody else. Everybody's just themselves. Just live your life. Just live your life. No one's in each other's shit. And it, it drives me crazy up here. Everybody's in everybody's. Yeah. You know, I know. You're gonna have to I don't judge me to Mexico. I'm yeah, I don't judge say. anybody. You can do whatever you want, yeah. but I don't need to. I don't need to have you telling me this is how it's got to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm excited to go to Mexico then. Yeah. Um, politics. I'm sorry. We shouldn't. No, we don't politics. talk politics. Yeah. But it, sadly, they they're intertwined in in our sport for sure. And I I do wish you were right. I wish we could. Here's what's gonna happen, and this is we're skirting politics. So I'm gonna be careful here. But there's laws passed here now where you can't green sticker a new bike. The only way you're going to be able to ride off road in the not so distant future is with a street legal bike. It will be dual sporting only unless you're on a closed course. It's a lot of gray area. Well, yeah. And, and people will do it anyway. Right. But like legally, that's the precedent they're setting. Sure. So if that's where it's headed, then, and you know, you can make a decent dual sport bike, I guess, but you're not going to be sending big jumps out of Ocotillo like guys are now, right? On a, maybe, I don't maybe. know, maybe. It depends, again, you're quantifying plated bikes. I mean, there's there's all these different ways to have a plated bike, right? Maybe you have a plated bike from Montana that's different than a plated bike from California. I don't know if they're going to take all those bikes off the road. I don't think so because you can ride a plated bike across state lines. Yeah. So that's a different, it's a different motorcycle. But yes. They're, they're making it difficult is my point. And if you're going to do Everything that, in California is difficult. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, you better start supporting these and I'm talking to the manufacturers here and, and the industry as a whole, we better start supporting these local tracks that are still alive because when they go away, then what? They should support the local tracks. They should support the media. They should support a lot of stuff. But I understand the manufacturers have a lot to do with what they're already doing and supporting. And there's probably a lot we don't see with having to deal with a lot of the rules that are changing. But I agree there should be more support um, inside the core grassroots parts of our yeah. sport from the manufacturers. I just get nervous. Like we talked about all these tracks that have gone away I mean, milestone. Most recently, uh, people don't know. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the Elsinore track that's been bought by Amazon. Now, I don't know what the timeline is, but that'll be a distribution center before too long. What's crazy is that used to be the lake. The lake used to be on that side over there. I don't oh, know. Is that right? I didn't, I didn't know, know that. Yeah. So the late about 25 years ago, the lake shifted to the other side. I don't, don't ask me. I don't know the exact details, but, um, the businesses that used to be lakefront on the north side, the launch ramp, the, the main launch ramp for the lake, it all is underwater. It's all underwater there. The lake like moved to that side somehow or another. And that floodplain back there where the moto track is, it wasn't the lake, but it was like the floodplain left over from it. And I think that's how they got the ability to build, have the motorcycle track there because they couldn't do anything with yeah. it. And now maybe they're deeming that the lake's never coming back that way. I'm not sure. Well, all those housing tracks, you remember that they had to build that pad up 10 mm -hmm. feet or 15, whatever it was right. to get above the floodplain. And maybe that's how come the lake shifted that way because they were building houses on that end. I have no idea. But that's just back to like, hey, don't jam it in my face. It's like, if you like an electric car, have an electric car. I'm sorry, I have a gas car. You're like, just don't, 
Like, let's try to make sensible decisions and be fair yeah. with each other. I agree. Uh, okay, so tell me about you. You started riding then about eight, ten, twelve. So, a little bit younger than that. Okay, yeah, younger than. That. Were you into racing? Like, did you want to race, or you just like to ride? So my brother was a racer. My brother Grant, he is faster than I am, more reckless than I am, more willing to hold it wide open in fifth gear. I wasn't that guy. Um, I was riding waves for a living, and uh, I was dabbling in riding dirt bikes. I rode uh, the beginner class, and I think had success. Rode the junior class, had success, won CMC races and all that stuff. But my brother was, he was a fast intermediate, you know? And um, what years would this have been? Give me just this a This would have been 80s? 80s, 80? yeah, like uh, maybe 83, 4, 5. Okay. So it was massive out here. In that massive. Moment. Oh, gigantic. And like so, four or five gates of novices to qualify for yeah, the motos. It was insane. We, 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 I, I, I have a couple of my brother's trophies, a couple of my trophies like winning the junior class of the of Golden State Nationals and something yeah. like that. I don't keep any trophies. I threw hundreds of trophies away. I just don't keep it. It's just there's too much clutter, but I miss some of it. But there are there is one old school milk crate that I put some trophies in like 30 years ago yeah. that still gets hauled around. It's like <laughs> it goes on every move. It's movie. got like it's got like one of my pipeline trophies in it. It's got one of my San Clemente trophies from one of the contests down there. It's got some moto stuff. It's got a picture of my brother. He always rode number 0. Okay. He was that guy. Yeah, I love it. And uh, But anyway, uh, yeah, so I raced a ton uh, when I was at home. Okay. I was riding waves, and, and my parents were like, hey, well, you've made this commitment to ride waves. You know, you should probably be a little bit careful about riding the dirt bike all the time. But we rode. All we did was we used to live in the hills of San Clemente. We would ride out of our garage and ride in the hills all the time. My brother, Trigger, myself, and a few other guys, it was nonstop. Mm. And uh, so – for us, we never really liked to make tracks like Somo and um, and Mike, uh, not Mike Craig, uh, Craig Canoy. Uh, they had these tracks and they would like rip around and haul ass, and we'd be like, we'd be at the cliff jumps in the tomato fields and like trying to make anywhere there was construction it was like, oh, you could see like the jumps, make do all the jumps. So it was a natural progression for me just to to jump, and that's how the Supercross thing ended up coming around. My brother was fast. But he wasn't fast enough to produce outdoor national type speed. He was good enough to be like a top five intermediate. He never even turned pro until much later. He raced, um, we raced Mickey Thompson races actually together. Um, but for me, I just, I was riding waves and the moto was way more appealing to me because everybody starts at one time and there's the checkered flag. When you cross, clear you cut. win. Yeah. It's clear cut. And I was ra I'd been racing cars this whole time, right? Because I started racing cars when I was in '82. I started. Oh, like what? Off road cars. I've won the ball a thousand and eighteen, but my family's been racing since '70. So the whole time through all this, the surfing, our bodyboarding, the BMX stuff, all through all the moto, the freestyle, the television, I've been racing cars the whole time. Oh, okay. So it wasn't your just your dad doing it. You actually were. I did it. My dad went in '70 with Parnelli Jones, and '71 he was on the start line. And then uh, by 82, I was navigating. Well, he was him. partnered with Parnelli Jones? He was Parnelli Jones' pilot in the 1970 Baja 1000. I have pictures, little still, little slides that he was taking pictures out of the airplane. He was, uh, he owned multiple planes and never had a pilot license. That tells you a lot about my dad right there. Yeah, it does. And, uh, well, fast side story. My dad used to, when I was a kid and I'd be first got my driver's license and I'd be driving too fast. So they, hey, you'd be like, hey, slow her down, Parnelli. And I'm like, 
hell are you talking about? It was Parnell. Right. I had no idea who the guy yeah. was. And years later, I, I found out who it was. Yeah. So my family had that trajectory. So I was doing all this stuff, but then the motor racing became really appealing to me because I could go to the race and win or finish third. And there was no opinion. Yeah. It wasn't subjective. Uh, subjective. Yeah. I hated that. I, I got to the point where it was just, I was past that. Mm-hmm. And that's how the whole racing dirt bike thing came around. You know, I was never that good at it, but I knew I didn't want to go fifth gear on the track. So I never even, until I became a commentator and I was riding the reporter bike at nationals, I never rode a national track. Mm. I never tried to ride at that speed. And at that time I did try to ride at that speed and, and actually got better at riding by riding with all those guys later. But yeah, the supercross thing was so fun because it was all jumps and it wasn't nearly as serious as it is nowadays when I was doing it. But well, in those, those, you know, mid early nineties, uh, it was always, we would go up and watch the, the B and C practice. Like when we go to places like Minneapolis or where the guys couldn't ride all year round, like, you know, Southwest mm-hmm. Southeast guys are, you know, pretty dialed in, but you get up North where the guys were, it's February. They haven't ridden in two months. Right. They just pulled their bike out when I'm doing the supercross and man, shit show guys yeah. case and jumps and crashing everywhere. But there wasn't the, now it's hard to get your license and get in. Yeah. Back then you just kind of went, Hey, I'd like to do this race. Is yeah. that cool? What I did is I, uh, I asked one of the local promoters, um, what do you think? I, I think I'm going to race supercross. And at the time, Glenn Helen had the short, the like supercross style track, um, where the car track is yeah. now. Yeah. And it had this like big corner double as best I can remember it. And not everybody would jump it, but I was like every lap sending it. We'd even shortcut the track, come back, just jump it. We were just whatever. And uh, I asked one of the promoters, well, what do you think? You know, I think I could get my, my license, my MA license to race Supercross. They're like, probably, yeah. And so I sent into AMA to get the packet. And at the time, you had to, I think you had to give references. And so I, I gave the references and I got, an, I got a number. It was that easy. It was that easy. Send in the check yeah. and have a couple names on there. And yeah. 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 So back in, I think it was 92 or not, it was 91 because I raced the, 92 Anaheim Supercross. Okay. And uh, yeah, I got my license. I think I was number 104. That was my first number. I'm going to need to see some photos of these years. You know what's funny is there's no photos. I don't have any photos. I have one photo of Trigger jumping the triple at the at the Rose Bowl in whatever, 92 or 3. 3? Yeah. I have one picture of that. He And true story, he landed and went off the berm at the end. because Back then, the, the triples weren't homogenized. Right. It wasn't like the same distance every time. And I don't even know exactly what the distance is, but it's a lot shorter 63 than 63 feet. Is something like they, that. Yeah. Right. So back then, like, uh, at the LA supercross, you would go off the, off a double and then you'd have a big finish line jump and then you'd have a long triple after, but the Rose bowl triple seemed longer. And I could be wrong. They could all still be the exact same distance, but back then it sure was a lot of work to get over them. Well, I, at the, if it was the 93 Rose bowl, uh, in my heat race, they had watered. I spun up the face of the triple, cased it, hyperextended my knee and blew up my ACL. Damn. So Trigger had a problem with that same jump in, during the day qualifiers. Mm. And he never, he didn't make the night at night. They were, tracks were gnarly back then. I, because they I believe built, the tracks were much gnarlier. I, it was like, yeah, just they weren't built as flowy. Right. So faces were steep steeper. or the landings yeah. were steep or. No, I remember I, every supercross I would go to, I would ask, um, Mike Chamberlain, cheese. Yeah. yeah, I'd ask him because he was real friendly with me. He's not. There's a couple guys that were like cordial, 
Like I was not in the group, right? Because I never raced intermediate or pro. Yeah. I didn't know any of these guys. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody. I just got my license and went to the race and I parked my pickup truck over here. Yeah. And uh, Pat Alexander at Suzuki was giving me some parts. I was sponsored by Orange County Suzuki. Okay. Um, the Saba family had sponsored us. But I didn't know any of these guys. So I had no one to ask. I never rode a Supercross track. I The first Supercross track I rode was at the LA, at the Anaheim Supercross. And how bad do you need to know? Like, hey, is that second or third? Like, well, you need you to need have to some know. questions. Yeah, so <laughs> that was my thing is, and so Mike Chamberlain, who was a really good dirt bike rider, I, he made the main a couple times, I think. Did he run for Mitch? Yeah, he, 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 was a, he was a really nice guy. I haven't talked to him in 25 years, probably. But um, he would, I would ask him, I'm like, hey, so, you know, what, what gear and like, what's your gearing? Cause what I would do, same thing I did at Mickey Thompson ultra cross. They always had the truck, the two truck jumps in the middle going backwards yeah. or vertical. Right. Yeah. And so I would gear my bike for that jump or the triple. And then I just ride the rest of the track. However just I could, out, yeah. because I had to, I had to be able, I had a real huge mental block because I grew up riding in the hills jumping. I always was a gear up. And so I could not hit the triple in second gear. Mm. no matter what gearing I had, I had to shift to third. And the same thing ended up happening to me on the freestyle ramps is I always wanted to shift up a gear. And so I had to gear my bike down to get me to the gearing that would make it comfortable to hit the jumps. But Mike Chamberlain was someone that always was willing to talk to me and help me out with the, with the gear. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. He's still around. Yeah. I haven't, like I said, haven't seen him in forever, but he was the nicest of guys. Super great dude. Um, my favorite supercross riders of the days were Larry Ward and Mike Craig. Mm-hmm. You know, I really thought those guys were freaking awesome. And when I got to race on the tracks with those guys, I was like oh, mind blown. And yeah. I raced, I sucked. I just to be clear. <laughs> I was a terrible supercross racer. Um, I did make every night show that I signed up for other than my first 92 Anaheim and my last 97 Anaheim. All the others, I made the night show. And granted, I only raced three, four, five, six races a year, whatever, San Diego, Anaheim, LA, Vegas, all the stuff that was close. Three or four. You never got hurt during that window? I got hurt at the 97 Supercross. I broke my tibia plateau, Mm -hmm. so my ACL pulled off my knee, Mm -hmm. um, which I never got fixed, by the way, uh, with a doctor. Um, but I didn't, I didn't ride that day. And that was the only time I got hurt that I can think of racing supercross in the States, but I did get hurt in Sonata. I was racing, a, a promoter supercross in downtown. I can't remember exactly who was there, but Jeff Willow was there. And, um, I was, uh, there was a turn that was real tight, turned into a small double and the concrete had shown through. And so I, I spun and as soon as I, like, you're sitting down, like get a seat bounce and like, Wah! and I tried to do that. My, I spun, but I could, didn't realize what was happening. And I was sitting down fully engaged in the bike and it just, it just hooked up on the face. It sent me forward. Oh. And I was like, like so committed and down in the pocket of the bike, I could get off. And so it just sent me like this and I nosed in and broke both my wrists. Oh. I'm still rocking 11 plates and. I'm sorry, 11 pins and two plates in my left arm from surgery in Ensenada in 1996, maybe. Did you get a tennis shot with that? Probably. Probably some scrap. They would let me leave, so they wanted to take me. They wanted to take me to San Diego, and the doctor, um, I remember, uh, was saying that he could die from shock, 
um, if you just took them from the hospital, like my, my hand was like turned around on my arm uh -huh. kind of, and, uh, most people would never notice it, but I can notice whenever I'm talking on TV, I have really weird mannerisms with my hands. I don't move my hands the same as everybody else. Oh, really? Yeah. You would never notice. I probably wouldn't notice, but every once in a while I can see like if I'm doing something and I'm watching a playback, I can see that my hand looks weird the way it's moving. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's self. I'm gonna stare at your hands now yeah. when I see you on TV. Well, it's better than staring at my face because it's not as pretty <laughs> as it used to be. That's for sure. But um, I had a lot of fun. I had a great time racing Supercross. Well, you had to be decent if you made it through that many races each year without killing yourself. Decent, I guess, is a. I mean, I was. We used to call the last chance qualifier the money race. Hey, be stoked if you got the hundred dollars instead of the fifty dollars, <laughs> right? I think it was. I think it was fifty for like the last five spots, and then a hundred bucks. And I, um, I, uh, and remember part of this could be made up in my head because I, it's been so long, but I think one time I got like a $500 check or something like that. And I was like, Oh my God, I was so stoked. But, um, yeah, I don't know the exact trajectory of it. I don't know how close I came to the main, maybe three or four or five spots away one yeah. time, but I wasn't that good. And, you know, we would go to Vegas sometimes and they wouldn't even be day qualifying. And I'd be like, yes, we're <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I made it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, mom made the nice show. Yep. yep. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, it was it was a great time and it was a great time in motorcycling too. Oh uh, yeah. It, you know, it's um it was fun and everybody was really um the fans were really crazy. That's one of the biggest memories I have is I didn't make it in Anaheim the first time and I rode the day qualifier, I was real tight and uh my heat race I, I don't even remember, but I there was an L C Q and I missed by one or two spots. Someone probably can find the records of how I really finished. But I, right then, I'm like, I can do this. I missed by a couple spots and I rode super tight. I'm like, next week in San Diego, I'm going to make it. And I went to San Diego, first heat race of the day. I made it in the first heat. I was in the show and I was like, oh my God, this is going to really happen. And the craziest part of the whole thing was back then Jack Murphy had like 63,000 people, yeah. right? We came down for the heats and pushed our bikes out through the, the thing. And I was like, it was like, it was like an explosion. It was so like overwhelming the vibe and the, oh my God, the energy was psychotic. And I'll never yeah. forget my buddy Dean Rohan from San Clemente is like standing on the rail right above the tunnel and yells my name. And I turn around and I'm like, and it's just like I couldn't believe I couldn't believe I was there. I like I'd made it, yeah. you know. Even though making it usually means winning, I, I didn't do that part. But you can't explain. It's hard to explain that you can't feeling explain to feeling. people, right? No, the, no. the lights on and seeing it from the floor oh, and the smell oh. and your <laughs> your adrenaline, which is just like peaking. It was so crazy. Like you yeah. come out and like, I mean, you're like, I mean, everybody that's ridden motocross understands. Like you line up on the gate, right? The energy. You go to the Supercross and your bikes are off, you line up at the gate and the announcer at the time, probably Larry Huffman or Larry Nastin, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, huge voices just revving it up, the people going crazy. And you're like, and you're like, gate your bike. And all of a sudden the bike start and everybody's going in two strokes, rah, rah. And you're in the stadium and the, the smoke doesn't dissipate right from the bikes. It's right behind you the whole time. It's like, you're starting to choke on the fumes and the board goes sideways and you're like, Oh my God. And, uh, my, my biggest memory is I almost took out Mike Kodowski when he was lapping me one time. Yeah. Yeah. That was the scariest thing that ever happened. <laughs> I like, 
I was so I was so bummed, but he laughed me and he hooked his lever on my jersey. As I remember, the jerseys were huge, yeah. right? So I'm like probably doubling the triple, and he flies by and catches his lever on my jersey. And I could, as he went by, I could just see his bars were a little crooked. I'm like, oh man, you can't be a lapper and take people out. No, that's enough. Definitely can't be that guy. Not so, going to be a fan favorite with that move. No. But no one ever, I never got hated on by anybody. No one ever came over to my truck and said, hey, kook, beat it. No one ever said that. Everybody was nice and whatever. I wasn't in the mix, so they didn't care. I was out there and right around the circles. That's cool you did it, though. I like, it gives it. you such a, such a more clear perspective when you're calling the, these races, even though it's freestyle or something. Yeah. You can still relate that, right? For sure. That's I an ex- I, I've tried so hard to explain that feeling. From the time you roll into the stadium for your first seat until the card goes sideways. At that point, you, it's kind of turned you, off. Yeah, right? your brain you just sort of see it, you know, fizzles out. But yeah. that time in there, man, I don't know what your heart rate's at. 160? And a, enough adrenaline know, to kill a, a small animal. For sure. Uh, overcoming every obstacle possible, you know, just like to be there. It's just really... Uh, yeah. For for anybody that you talk to that's ever done it, man, give them a high five. Totally, it's, it's punk yeah. rock. It's, yeah, I really, I really thought it was one of those moments in life where I couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah, that's rad. You did it. What, who who were you like? So you said your guys were uh, Chamberlain I, and uh, like, no, who, who did you luck up to? Kind of. Oh, I, look, I well, I thought Larry Ward was Larry pretty Ward. awesome, and I really like uh, Mike Craig. Okay. Um, I actually, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure I remember when Christian first came to the races, you know, like way back then. But yeah, I really liked Stingray. I liked his style and he he loved to send it. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was a sender for sure. But what I, was it about Big Bird you liked? I just liked his style and that he didn't really, he never really acted like he was a big shot, you know? Yeah. Just kind of was cruising. And I'm not saying anybody else acted like a big shot, but Larry was just like, you know, real down to earth. Yeah. Um, I, to this day, I don't think he would know who I was. Like I've seen him at other events over the years, but I don't think he would ever know who I was, but I, I really thought he was pretty spectacular. And I was really fortunate that I got to ride in this weird kind of pocket of years, right? Cause the legends were still there. Uh, Ward Stanton, they they were still there. Yeah. That's a good point. You caught the transition. I I was there at the end of that. And really when Supercross was getting steeper, I thought. And I was there when McGrath and Emig were starting or there, you know? Yeah. So there was like this huge transition. And so for a long time in commentating and, and just even till recently, I'm like, well, there's still a couple of riders that race supercross when I commentated, you know, but I don't, I don't know if there's any, any more. Um, I would have to go back and look and see what years I commentated, but maybe like Eli or some of those guys were around in the, in the small bike class when I was there, but that's hard. It's really hard to say at this time, but it goes fast. It really it does. I took, I took jet and Hunter on a tour of TLD when they were on the show and I'm pointing around, oh, it's McGrath's helmet. And oh, I said, here's one, uh, they traded for chicken and they're like, who, who's chicken, who's chicken. The I'm greatest like, moment in Supercross history, chicken taking out Bradshaw. Yeah, I'm like, damn, wait, hold on. Jeff Matassa? You don't know Jeff Matassa? They had never even heard the name. Oh, my God. And That's I'm so thinking, crazy. then you got to put into perspective, right. they weren't born till 2001. I right. Mean, they never even heard of a record player. <sighs> it makes me feel They don't even know who Metallica is. Right? Or oh, ACDC, maybe. Those kids are amazing, by the way. Um, I, I saw Johnny a couple times talking about them, man. They're just hearing about how confident they are and how good they ride and just yeah. watching them on TV. It's, it's fun to watch. They're incredible. And, and, uh, 
I know you don't have a lot of free time, but if you're ever on a drive and want something interesting, go listen to their episode of this show. Okay. Their path that they took to get here yeah. will blow your mind. I heard it's pretty amazing. Jet was sleeping on a pool table in an old bar. Um, they were just nickels and dimes, man. Yeah. Like, and, and there's a lot to that story. It wasn't I think that a pretty crazy story. One thing I really like about uh, Jet is that resurgence of Jeremy McGrath's flair a little bit. Mm-hmm. The personality, the outgoing, the donuts, the you yeah. know, engaging with the fans. I like that about Hayden too. He's like engaging with the fans and like really cultivating the personality of it. Because I think for a long time, um, when I was announcing, even there was a lot less personality. It got stale. It got very yeah. well. What I vanilla. What I used to do is like I remember when Chad came over, I was commentating. And Chad was the best interview because he wouldn't like, it wasn't like the like sponsor talk. He would say it, you know, like he would, he would have something to say. And then it got to the point where everybody was all I could say was their sponsors, no matter what question you asked them. So I used to be behind the microphone, the camera here, like and they're answering and I'd be going like this, like making faces at them at times. Cause it was just like, it was like dog crap. No yeah. one wanted to hear it. Your sponsors yeah. are on your chest, man. Tell the story. Yeah. They want to engage with you. And for a long time, and I'm not saying that whole whole group was stale, um, but I would say that a couple things really changed. The sponsors got into it and people would get fined for not saying their sponsors or whatever. And the other thing was the training got so insane that they couldn't be themselves. Yeah. You know, I was still there when guys were probably, you know, having a beer or two after the race or whatever. And, you know, I would imagine that it got so serious in the training and everything that, that yeah. a lot of that went away. Well, and it, like things do, we were probably way off to one side because there was more than just a beer after the race. Sure. Memorial Day weekend at Havasu, you know, there's piles of cocaine and there, there was a lot of stuff going on. Sure. That for not for me. I never did any drugs. I'm not saying you. Sure. But I'm just saying I walked in and saw it and I was like, I, this is not, I don't belong here. Right. But there was... Some very big names in those parties. Two, Ricky comes on the scene, and now at least the and you know Ricky would have a beer or two, but his, sure. his thing was always time and place. It, it was he was taking it like a professional athlete, right? I really respect Ricky for what he did because he came in, and you could arguably say that he wasn't the greatest moto talent of all time, like uh, it wasn't the most naturally finesse sure. rider, right? But he came in and he put his head down and he made shit happen. And watching Ricky, I I think I announced his perfect season or both of them, right? But watching him ride, he's like, oh my God, this guy is so good. But what he's really good at is overcoming everything. (laughs) Right? Yeah. He just just hits it head on and makes it happen. And I really love Ricky. I, I always thought his personality was pretty solid because he always had like this little wisecrack side to him, right? He'd like kind of throw you an off the cuff comment once in a while. And it made it fun. You know, some of the other guys were too serious. Yeah. But maybe Ricky was so great that he didn't have to be that serious. But Well, I liked seeing Ricky when he wouldn't win because that's when you'd see – he was always very humble when he did. Sure. Which was a lot. Right. But when he didn't win, he couldn't contain the disappointment and anger. Sure. Like, you know, but he wouldn't blame anything. There was never an excuse. He's just like, I wasn't good enough today. But you could see inside he, yeah. he knows his mom's going to be screaming at him all week. Sure. He's, what, he, he knows he's going home and going to go for a run like that night. I mean, you could just see it. Right. He hated to lose. I, I don't. I don't blame him. Losing sucks. Losing but does especially suck. if you're Ricky Carmichael and you're used to winning all the time. But he he propelled. Like it was interesting because Jeremy took our sport and did things that no one else had ever done with it. And Ricky 
took that next role of taking our sport and doing things that no one ever did with it. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was pretty cool. James obviously played a big part in that. I enjoyed listening to James on the broadcasts. I too. do too. I like, yeah. I like when James, uh, lets the, uh, lets it fly a little bit, you know, like, and throws his opinion out there. I, that's one thing I think that is lost on broadcasters sometimes is that you have to not only give your opinion, but take from information that you may, may not be always popular with the athlete and, and tell the stories. And sometimes I think that the commentators are too tight. Well, this is this is the problem with Moto, not just in the TV side of it, but just in general, media in general. Because if you want to get into the truck to get the scoop of what's going on or get an interview, man, you've got to be real soft about what you say. Mm-hmm. James is in a very unique position where he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need to know the guys. He can just sequester himself in his compound down in Florida show up to the races in the rig, doesn't have to, you know, if he doesn't want to, he has no need to go talk to people. Send Jason Thomas to go do the interviews and just call it 100% like you see it. Yeah. You're right. It, I think that would be the best thing they could do for him. Well, I think that anybody that achieves that level needs to let their hair down a little bit and be able to tell the stories of everything going on because it lets the viewer in and engages them. An analogy I'll give you is um, when I was working at open wheel racing, um, the IndyCar sub series and then a champ car, they wouldn't give you any data. They give you no information. Mm. And, uh, it really was tough to tell the story. And I think that it really hurts the fans. Mm. Like the fans don't engage. And that was one of the things NASCAR was so great about. There was a ton of personality. There was a ton of wild racing and there was a ton of information. And now it's obviously been condensed down. Um, but that was, it just, for me, just, um, not hearing the commentators say what they really know or what's really going on. Sometimes, you know, and I don't, you don't have to be detrimental to the athlete. You don't have to say, no, it just has to be honest. Just, and just, yeah. you know, not everybody has their best day. And I, I can remember some of the athletes, we'd be at track walk the next week and they'd be like, they don't know you. They don't want to talk to you because of what you said on the air. You know, someone text them or, well, they're, I don't even know if we had cell phone. Yeah, we had cell phones then. Um, they'd text them and say, Hey, you should hear what Cameron said about this or that or whatever. I don't even give a shit. You know, I was just, I was just trying to make it fun and yeah. tell good stories and be honest, but never detrimental to the athlete. But if someone's not having their best ride day and they missed this line or they did something, say it. Yeah. You know, riders are the most sensitive mm-hmm. group of people you'll ever meet. And I can say that because I was one. I mean, I, I remember getting super pissed off at Jody Weisel for telling me, uh, after I'd gotten hurt, you know, like the third time in a row, he's like, you know, Ping should should go back to college and look at doing something different. And dude, it cut me to the core. Right. And I'm like, f this guy. And I, I won a couple of races after that. And so I always like to rub that. Used in motivation. Face. Yeah, but yeah. I think back now, like I don't know that he was even being mean. He was probably being like, hey, yeah. And I and there's I not a lot of money. Like you should really go back to college and do something different. Sure. You know, I don't know that he was even trying to be mean. But we get you pour your whole life into something, and when somebody critiques it. It's, it's like yeah, you burns. get defensive. Right? Yeah, but I think that part of that comes from, and I don't know your situation, but I think a lot of the moto athletes and athletes in general are coddled by yeah. their families, by their local, um, whoever helps them, their managers. They're in this like little bubble, right? And if someone like steps out of line, it's like, you know, it's like everybody needs to just relax. It's a regular life, right? Like when I was a kid, I got trash canned at school and it just does things happen, right? And, and I don't wish that on anybody. I'm just saying that, you have to come back from whatever 
negativity or whatever mistake you made and just be the best you can be. And I think that that's, again, like I was saying earlier, like people are in your face about how they feel or what they think, right? But everybody just has to have their own personal feelings and do what you want to do. I want to race off-road trucks, and I do. I finished fifth in the score race this weekend, didn't win. We were the first two-wheel drive truck, but I'm listening to the chirping over here. Oh, Cameron Steele is not going to win because he doesn't have a, a four-wheel drive. Hey, you know what? Kiss my ass. I don't care what you think. I'm going to go do my best to win the ball 1,000, whether I have an all-wheel drive or not. I think we have the best weapon to win. And on certain days, and we're, I know we're really talking about Supercross and Motocross, but certain days they just don't have it. Yeah. And if it's not on, it's not on. No? So what? We talk about the super highs. We got to talk. There has to be a balance. Of course. And, and it feels like sometimes, not just the commentators say, I'm talking about over the last 25 years of our sport. It's always up here. It's always it's always rosy and sunny. Yeah. And it's not. It's not always rosy yeah. and sunny. It just needs to be more real. Um, our broadcasts have gotten, um, as the sport has gotten more money, more professional, it's kind of turned a little, I don't want to say corny, but. Um, it's gone the way of bodyboarding. It's all smiles. It's all nice. Yeah. A little milk perfect. Toast. It's milk toast. Yeah. It's flat. And, I, and that's why I don't like our sport sometimes because the whole thing, not just commentating, but the whole thing feels a little bit milk toast. When you look at somebody, ride, look at Jet ride the dirt bike. That is the gnarliest sport you could ever, ever do. Yeah. Look at them ride the dirt bike. Equal effort in every other aspect. The sponsors need to embrace that there's personalities. The commentators need to embrace the television, the events. Yeah. And I always said, you know, when I was commentating, I'm all, hey, you guys are going to make this huge story out of James and Ricky or Chad, granted they were the story, or Villapoto, whoever it was at the time. There's all these other 70 people over here that you're not really giving any love to. When these three or four guys aren't there, who are they going to come watch? Mm -hmm. you, we got to better develop the story. Tell the whole yeah. story. Yeah. And that was one of the things this guy named Paul Tabley told me when I was younger. I first started announcing, and I was like, yeah, yeah, hitting all the high points, and like, talking about what you can see he's like Cameron he took me aside he's like hey you're doing a great job commentating he was the one that hired me to do that first X Games event but you need to tell a story and, and don't be afraid to tell the story over but start at the beginning and tell the story and give people reason to engage with it yeah don't just oh my god it's first down in 10 and oh my god he connected that pass and oh my god that Tell them why that's important. Yeah. Tell them what that story is. Tell them about that athlete. And I think that telling the story and engaging the athlete is going to be helpful all the way around. Yeah. I mean, uh, you should have had one of the most successful careers when it comes to personality. You are now. But when you were racing, it, your flair and your style and your personality was like one of my favorites, right? But the sport wouldn't let you be yourself all the time, right? You couldn't just be David Pinger. You couldn't be Ping. Couldn't be Pingaling or whatever the hell it was. You couldn't be the boy band Ping that we have now. <laughs> but releasing that personality, and they started to do it later on in my announcing career. They started to get more like you started to know um, Ryan. Um, his name is escaping me suddenly. He started his own race team. Ryan. Um, Yamaha's. Oh, man. I can't believe I can't remember. Clark? Clark, yeah. Yeah, Ryan Clark, okay. Yeah. Team they, Solitaire. Yeah, they started like building on that and you started seeing more of that. But I think you need to develop more of the athletes and let them 
let them more personalities come out and you have to you have to shine a light on the personalities travis preston was another great one just i don't know how you'd even describe his interviews on the podium yeah he would go i wasn't funny i was just honest yeah but like he He'd was come so out dry on yeah. Yeah. yeah that it made it entertaining yeah. people loved him they still talk about i was interviews. there for travis preston yeah. yeah yeah that was during your time yeah so i had two times right i had racer dork time and then I had commentator dork time. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a gap between. I'm not, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you what years I announced Supercross. Oh, really? No, I couldn't even do it. I, I know I was there probably around 08, but I can't remember what years I was doing it. I remember uh, my last year was, I, I wanted to say it was 12, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know either. I, yeah, can't, I, I have no idea. I know I announced it for maybe five years, six years. Okay. I was around for a little bit, but then there's a weird tweak time too, because I went from television commentator to amp mobile phone commentator guy so i was still in the mix so those years oh. all kind of run together did you do nationals as well i did i rode the camera bike at nationals. oh that's da right davy did that for a couple of years and then i came in after him i think and, i remember uh, maybe one year i towed you over the step up at hangtown uh so there was a big conversation about that so davy had jumped it and then so the pressure was on are you going to jump it well it turns out when i got to the track my bike was like a hodgepodge like it wasn't really like they had just kind of slapped the bike together to ride around the track and they didn't realize someone was going to be jumping it and stuff so they kind of like i kind of got the vibe that i shouldn't ride it that hard at first but then later i think it was lee mccallum at suzuki those guys started really building the bike or prepping it so i could ride it it was a display bike that i was okay. riding so i didn't i never did jump that oh jump. you didn't okay i didn't but I, but I, I remember did. there being a story around. Yes, it. yeah, and I think you did try to tow me over, and I ended up not doing it the second year. Okay. The second year I did the helmet camera because the first year I didn't do it because of the bike, and the second year I'll tell you the reason why I didn't do it is because I, um, not real publicly out there, but I struggle with a lot of anxiety over the years, and I've got a pretty good handle on it nowadays. But what happened was I got in my own head, and I'm like, well, hey. I didn't jump it the year before, and now I'm going to force myself into jumping this because I'm feeling pressure. And I always told the athletes at freestyle events to not back themselves into a corner on something when the conversation would come up. And um, I have seen a couple times over the years where athletes did something that they probably weren't ready to do and shouldn't have done. And I got into my own head that day and decided not to jump it. And the main reason I decided not to jump it was because I told Davey I was going to do it. And I just felt like I was putting undue pressure on myself. And I have to be bigger than that. And I have to be willing to accept my shortcomings. And I am. I didn't do it. And call me a puss, whatever you want. I didn't do it. And you lived to walk another day. I walked away from it. <laughs> but I did jump a lot of great jumps on all the national tracks. I mean, yeah. I, I was able to conquer most all the jumps at all the tracks. And uh, I was pretty stoked. I did not do LaRocco's Leap before you ask. I can tell you I did not do that. I wasn't even going to ask because yeah. that's a... That's another level. I was uh, at the the second year that I was riding the helmet camera bike. They actually started putting a transponder on me. And we started getting times and like it kind of had progressed, right? And so, but it, someone on the production crew was like, "Hey, uh, no matter what, you can't can't jump that jump, even if you want to." Yeah. And I took some runs from the outside of the corner at the bottom, just to see if I thought I could do it. And I was like, I, "Maybe," but I don't think so. Yeah. This is on a 252 strip, yeah. by the way. Well, I only ever did it one time. Yeah. And uh, it was 97. Ricky and I both wanted to jump it. It was a practice day, which used to be on Fridays. Mm -hmm. Remember back then? Yeah. And Saturday was nothing. We raced Sunday. 
we went, there was a gate right there and he and I peeled way out of that field, came from way off the track. I was in fourth gear before I even got to the track and every single thing we had to get over it in probably fifth gear. Mm-hmm. So, and it's changed a bit. I think it was farther, but flatter back then. Now it's steeper, but maybe not quite as far. I haven't seen it in 20 years or yeah, 15 years or whatever, it's but still... I did get to go to all the tracks. Um, some of the coolest things I experienced in my moto career, but it was as a commentator is I did get to ride Unadilla when it was grass. I was the first rider on the track. True story. Ezra was out on the big tabletop yelling, go, go. But the grass was like this high. I couldn't even see the lip. <laughs> like there's, yeah, there's bumps and rocks. No way. There, yeah. Well, I don't know what they do now, but back then they used to grade the track after the end of the season or after that race and no one touched it until the national came. And I also got to ride Southwick as a flat. That's fun. I got to do like four laps all by myself. Yeah. And then I had to ride it after all the practices I rode uh, in the final practice also. That's an eye opener. Oh man. That was, it's hard to even get around at the end of the day. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you guys did it. Honestly, I never raced an outdoor national or motocross championship whatever it's called now um but i have a lot of respect for everybody that went out there and put it shifts it into fourth and fifth gear and holds it on it's not easy especially at southwick so i want to let's move on to how you're announcing okay how you got into this because I, this is something i didn't know uh you went to a an x games freestyle qualifier yeah and that was the start but tell me this story okay so at the time i was working for gotcha international and mcd clothing running their marketing and uh, <clears throat> I'd come from the surf industry, obviously been riding dirt bikes my whole life. The freestyle thing was happening. I believe we had already shot like some of the SMP videos. If there, I got small s- segments in those okay. in the disturbing the piece, uh, I do have a shot, maybe crusty two or three, but um, the freestyle thing had been happening that the, the um, four leaf guys were doing it already. And X games ran a test in San Diego with, four riders or maybe eight riders and it was mickey and the ramps and stuff but the first ever legitimate x games qualifier was in 1998 in october at the orange county fairgrounds and paul tabley had come around looking for sponsorship and gotcha owner marvin winkler uh, he was one of the partners with michael thompson who's now passed away they decided to sponsor with the mcd brand so all of a sudden i'm like in the mix with these guys what was MCD? Uh, more core division. It was Gotcha's sub brand that was more hardcore. Okay. So it had like kind of a harder flavor. Like the Gotcha was more of the like big stores and like the kids could wear. And then the MCD was like the more core division. Okay. Like the hardcore pipeline surfers and attitudes of personality. Gotcha. So MCD became the sponsor and uh, they're going to do this event. It's going to be the first uh, event with ramps, uh, Mickey's ramps, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I signed up to compete. Um, I wasn't very good. I rode at the very first professional freestyle contest that Shane Trittler put on in 97. Vegas or the one in? Uh... No, the one in Castaic Lake was predated oh, okay. that. Okay. Um, I would say that the Vegas event was the first big, real professional flamboyant show, but the first freestyle contest that paid the riders was at Castaic Lake Shane Trittler's event. Okay. Um, I went up there with, um, Nathan and trigger and Larry and manly and we rode that, but, uh, this was the first X games qualifier in orange County. And I signed up and I was real nervous. And, uh, the one thing I was real nervous about is I'd never hit the metal ramps and I'd never, um, hit a uh, big jump like that in second year. Oh yeah. And so now we're inside of 
like a regular speedway arena for the bikes, the short, short oval right. bike slide, the speedway bikes. And, uh, man, I, I walked out there on Thursday, they were building the track and I was like, Oh my God. Like there's just this giant mound and these two ramps. Right. And there's like no running, like your garage that you have at your house is like, you know, longer than the run in. So no way you're getting a third. That's no way you're getting, no way you're getting a third. I was trying to think, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? And I can see myself boner airing and all this stuff. I'm like, so anyway, I'm walking around on that Thursday and this guy, Paul Tablieb, who I might've met already, he's like, Hey, I was um, talking to a few people and they said that you speak pretty well and you know the sport and, um, you know, we don't have an announcer. And I was like, Hmm. I'm like, well, what does that pay? He's like, what well, better than 10th place? I'm like, I didn't even need to know how much it was for 10th place because, <laughs> because, uh, I was never going to be 10th place. I was, I, my recollection could be wrong, but I believe there was 44 riders signed up. Okay. And you're going to have to qualify into the night. And I knew for sure that I wasn't going to be that guy. Yeah. And so this was on Thursday. It was a two night show. It was going to be Friday, Saturday. Paul says, you know, we're hiring you to be the announcer. Never established the amount exactly. I don't think. Um, he's like, come back tomorrow. We'll get you set up, whatever. And um, the way I remember it, of course, it could be totally different this than what I recall. But I recall getting there, you know, midday. I'm watching all the practice. As soon as they opened practice, I was there. I watched the practice and qualifying on the Thursday. Then I'm watching practice on uh, Friday, you know, Hart, Sink, Jones, Clowers, all the guys. Feist. Yeah, yeah, all of them. Feist had probably just moved out to California at this point. Um and Clifford, I have so many great names. Um, and I'm watching these guys deck it and come up short. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm not out there. <laughs> and so I'm just like, I'm passing the day, like I'm getting information, but I have no idea what's going to happen. And so it's like practice is over. They're getting set. They watered the course. They kind of started opening the gates softly. It's like 5.30 show's going to start at 7. Maybe it's 5.00. I went and put a button down MCD shirt on that I still have one of the few mementos I kept. And, uh, this guy walks by me. He's like, Hey, you the announcer? I'm all, yeah. He's all, here's the microphone. Push this button to turn it on and don't drop it. It costs 800 bucks. That was your instruction. That was it. And so you're doing live floor announcing basically? Live floor announcer. Yeah. Yeah, To the house. So it was pretty interesting. Which is like, uh, cause I did that one time at the U S open for the freestyle thing, which is way, I don't know why I did it. Yeah. I got asked and said, sure. I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't know any of the tricks. I was just up there revving it up, flapping my gums. Yeah. And did it's you have fun. No, no, I didn't like it. I loved it. Uh, I didn't like, well, I didn't like that. I didn't know it. Right. That sucks. That's hard for sure. Uh, they're doing tricks and I'm calling it stuff that it probably wasn't. Uh, it, that was bad. The, yeah. I would have been better off calling the racing because at least I could have spoken sure. to that intelligence. Sure. Yeah. But there's pressure. It's a different oh. feel when you got all seven these people. seven thousand people, and all the athletes and you know people. Everybody, everybody in the industry is there watching. Like yeah. they're like X Games qualifier. What is this? Yeah. Right. And so I got caught on camera. And so true story is I used to uh, ride bodyboards. As I said, I also did some commentating a little bit. Um, at bodyboarding events and the guys at Dynacom was a production company that did the pipeline contest for bodyboarding. They were also the production company for the first X games qualifier. Okay. And so they, someone saw me on camera and they're like, well, we don't have an expert for the voiceover. What about Cameron? So Paul asked me and I said, 
Uh, sure. I mean, do I want to be a television commentator? Yes. And yes, it pays. And so they, they had sent, me at night they, place money. Yeah. They, they, uh, <laughs> they sent me to the Dynacom office to do it on camera and they sent that to ESPN and they said, yep. Okay. Use him. And so we did that broadcast in October of 98. So they aired the qualifying. They aired the qualifier. I think it aired like in February or March. Okay. Um, and then around that time they had committed to X games, obviously, and they didn't have a commentator. So next thing I know, they're like, Hey, we want you to come to Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN and do a test or bringing in all the announcers. And so they basically put us in a room and there's a producer and there's, you know, they're talking to us while we're commentating what we see on the screen. And, you know, some guys are like, you know, deers in the head, deer in the headlight, like, cause people are talking at the same time you're trying to talk. Then it seemed to come pretty natural for me. And, uh, it was a couple day course or whatever. And I did my first test. Everybody did a short 10 minute test or something. And I came out and they're like, all right, you can go home. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting fired <laughs> already. And the guy, they, they I don't remember who it was. Um, probably either, um, well, I'm not even sure, but they said, no, you're good. We're going to be at X games, but you can go home. You don't have to stay. And, uh, I went home and next thing I know that, summer i was flying up to san francisco for the 99 or 99 x games who, who was the who were the other announcers you were working jerry with? bernardo and i did oh, the bernardo. first calls for x games if i'm not mistaken for maybe eight years or so okay maybe i don't remember little, jerry being the guy but all right maybe jerry was a reporter but i'm pretty sure jerry and i called the contest together from the booth and what a contest the 99 yeah. x games are you kidding me well, first thing that happened was the course was like unbelievable, like all these jumps intersecting. And, you know, as a moto guy, when you first see that, it freaks you out because the moto track goes one way. The freestyle course goes like this all yeah. day long, right? Yeah. And you're just like, oh, man, that's like overwhelming. Um, but it was a pretty solid big course. The bummer of it was I think it took out Mike and Carrie and Tommy in the prelims yeah, I think in, I the, that. in the practice, maybe I don't remember exactly. I could be wrong a little bit, but, um, the first time the dirt bike started up or so we're on, you got to vision it, right? We're underneath the Bay bridge, not the golden gate, we're under the Bay bridge. There's this like, uh, a dock, but it's not like your average little boat dock. It's like, you know, maybe a quarter mile wide and a quarter mile long or something. It's we used to have buildings on, it's all flattened. And uh, the moto tracks over like kind of off to the side and the skate vert is going bananas. There's people everywhere. And someone started their dirt bike. It was going to be practice for moto. Someone started the dirt bike and started revving it up. I was in the announce booth when this happened and it looked like a tidal wave of people just flooding the area of freestyle motocross outside the barriers. And I was like, whoa that's so heavy and honestly next thing you know it's on tv and these guys are becoming the biggest stars and next thing you know i'm like on the main set talking freestyle moto with the these commentators that have been with espn and like i'm just like whoa this is like happening real fast real fast real fast for everybody i mean for everybody i mean i wouldn't say that they were overnight stars but that first group of freestyle guys made a huge impact um, not just in the sport of freestyle, but in motorcycling in general, it made motorcycling really accepted in, in different groups. And, um, 
I thought it was pretty key what Brian Deegan said the other day about his post with Travis Pastrana about how he he opened up the paradigm of people looking at dirt bikes and motorcycling. And I think Brian deserves a lot of that credit also for bringing another group of people into that same type of thing. Or the, you know, the people that some people looked at Travis, some people looked at Brian, some people thought Clifford was the best, whatever, but all those guys that were there, the, I think there was 14 riders, um, 10 competed. There were some alternates Twitch got in. Um, he was a huge story in USA today. Um, when that happened, but, it was just monumental and all of those guys deserve so much credit for propelling our sport. Um, not just because they were wild or crazy or whatever, they were technical dirt bike riders that showed that there's a whole other side yeah. to riding dirt bikes. And that's kind of what the crusty demons <clears throat> thing was doing at the same time. I mean, it, it blew our sport up outside of just racing and riding on tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, you mentioned it's important to have a, a Brian Deegan for every Travis Pastrana. And I agree. Crack a yin and yang. Yin and yang, right? But I think the thing that Travis did, if you just had all metal militia guys doing that, it would have perpetuated that stereotype that, oh, motorcyclists sure. are just all these, you know, right. tattooed, sure. punk, rock, you know. I it's agree a bad that scene. Travis transcends sport with his personality and his style, and he was the best thing for the sport. I totally agree with what you're about to and say. I, and I think Brian acknowledges that in that part. absolutely um i think so this dude who's just thumbs up a flying clean as a whistle and he's the gnarliest guy you know i would submit there's no one that's done as much for motorcycling in our history agree than travis i agree, I agree. that's a pretty big statement that's but like huge, i would stand statement. by that uh evil knievel would probably be up there in some ways and i think jeremy mcgrath would have to get a nod in there and some things i'm sure there's a lot of other people in motorcycling who i'm not thinking of like Roger DeCoster. Um, but Travis was a monumental yeah. figure and you should have seen the first time he got on the course. Now you gotta remember he's riding to one twenty five. Yeah. He is just coming out of the corner. Sixteen rap. too, right? He's fifteen. He's fifteen. Coming out of the corner is just a wrap. And he's he's doing tricks like we've never like he went out in his practice run and did a bunch of his tricks and we were just like oh, who is this guy? Like I had never seen him ride in person. Okay. And all of a sudden, this he's just like unbelievably dominating. I was like, oh my God, this kid is unbelievable. I think he scored a perfect, he's the only person that's ever had a perfect run. The next game, he's got 100 um, on his run. Yeah, I mean, he did he did so much for the sport and for us, right? Like he gives our commentator the opportunity to be there a time and time again because what he's doing is so incredible. And what's interesting uh, for me is I, I got to meet Travis when he was 15 at X games and I was just with him two weeks ago, uh, doing a Can-Am launch and Travis is the same, same smiling thumbs up, good attitude, great personality. He, he's a little wilder maybe like he goes bigger now even than he did then, but he is a, he is still that same kid, same personality. And, um, yeah, I had to ask him how old he was. I did the math in my head. I thought I had it pretty close. What is he? I think he's 38. Um, but he's he's really um, he's really engaging to be around. I still enjoy every time we get a chance to be around Travis. And I and I haven't been around Travis thousands of times or hundreds of times. I've, I've been around him and I've been there. And uh, he's always a great personality to be around every time. Really enjoyable. What were you guys getting, or what did you know before he jumped into the bay? Did you guys see that? Know that was coming, or what was this? I knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So there was chatter about it. 
before. I mean, it was obviously pre premeditated on their part. But. I'm pretty sure what happened is they had it was a two run format, and like I said, he scored a hundred. So can't get any better. Can't what get are you any, gonna do? Can't get any better. And I would say that the closest score was like a ninety four or something. I think didn't sink at second. I think Mike Sinkfar's got I mean, second. Uh, he's out of pocket on that. You know, God rest his soul. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, the way it worked out was Travis was going to go last. And there was a break in between the first runs and the second runs. I think they did first run moto final, and then they went to like skate or BMX or something else. So there was downtime. So there was chatter and chatter and chatter or whatever. It might even, I don't think it was a different day, but it was later. And so there's a lot of chatter about it. So I think that, I think that a lot of, not a lot, but quite a few people in the know knew it was coming. And, um, yeah, it was pretty monumental. I thought it was kind of interesting that he got his hand slapped for it or whatever, but, um, you know, wasn't there like a, a $10,000 fine and, and, uh, I'm sure there was because there got oil in the, in the bay, which I, I understand I'm not being disrespectful, but like down underneath where they got his bike, there was like old train cars, and <laughs> yeah. cars dumped over the pier. I mean, I get it. Um, they had said they took all the oil out of the bike and all that stuff. So I, you know, whatever I, I agree, not maybe not the right thing to do, but it, it definitely set the world ablaze on freestyle motocross, yeah. right? Yeah, look I, at this, yeah. look what this kid did. Yeah, it was insane. Well, that's uh, he you, is you were really part of a neat like you're, you're right, you you're not only moto, but even freestyle, man, you were really in this cool, sweet pocket of, of the sport. I'm so fortunate, and you know, I, I, I really thank everybody that gave me those opportunities, and I really. You know, I wasn't the guy that sat there and took all the notes all the time, but I was paying attention and I always gave, I think, good information and a solid foundation for my commentating. Um, whether I fit exactly with whatever organization or group at the time was doing it, I didn't always, but I always gave my commentating my all. And I was always tried to be honest and straightforward with it for yeah. everybody. Yeah. You did a great job, man. You were, you were the voice of X Games to me. Um, and maybe it's just the stuff I was watching, sure. but... Like I just, I just associate your voice with X Games. Yeah, thank um, you. I, I don't know, know if that's good or bad. It's good. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, another Travis Pastrana story. I was one of the commentators for uh, in Carson. I did Supermoto, and I did Rally, and I rode with Travis in his Rally car on the X Games course. Now, that's dumb. I'm pretty sure. I would At least never, that's how my mind remembers it. I, I could never be. get in a car with that guy. That's pretty awesome. Was it scary? No. Oh, well, you're used to being in cars, though. Huh? You kind of grown up with that. Travis, I mean, Travis has had some crashes for sure. And uh, I might not get in the car with him now that I have kids. But he's done a lot of good no, stuff. He's radical, but. Yeah, he's radical. I watched the videos from his, his in-car. Now, if you asked stuff. me to go out to his, his property, his ranch, I would say no. Because that would probably lead me to trying to do something I shouldn't do. <laughs> Even if it's just dropping in on a skateboard ramp, because I probably shouldn't do that anymore. Yeah, Pastrana Land's a hard no for me. Yeah, I'm out. Um, but I did, love the guy. Did you know, like, did you kind of realize the opportunity, especially after that weekend, like, okay, I'm I'm on to, like, a whole career here? Mm -hmm. Or were you kind of like, oh, this is a cool little side thing? Like, where were you at? I was working at Gotcha in MCD, and uh, not long after that X Games, I started getting offers um, for jobs from X Games. I think what happened was I stayed at Gotcha and MCD um, for a little while, and I went to the Winter X Games and announced downhill mountain biking in the snow. And speaking of sports, it probably didn't belong, <laughs> but it was pretty hardcore. It was gnarly. Yeah. And um, 
after that, I started getting these opportunities come up and then the supercross thing came up. And when you're doing supercross and motocross, at least back then, I mean, we'd practice, like you said, on Thursday and, uh, you'd have to be there all weekend and couldn't get out till Monday. And so it made it hard to do anything else. Mm -hmm. So for, for a while there, all I was doing was television commentary mm. and, uh, still racing sometimes, but in the early two thousands, I didn't race. My mom had died from cancer in, in the mid nineties mm. and we'd quit racing as a family when she got sick. And so I didn't race from 90, I didn't race cars from 94, maybe till 2001. So I took a little bit of a hiatus. I went from being sponsored by my family and my dad. And when I came back in 2001, I was a television commentator and I started propelling some sponsorships and um, was it the Edge Sports, right? Mm -hmm. Wasn't that the team? Yeah. They sponsored my race car, my, my limited buggy for a couple races. Mm. Uh, super cool guys. And uh, yeah, it started propelling it by 2004. I was racing in the Unlimited Truck class, which is the premier class. A lot of people in racing at that time were like, well, who's this guy? Like he's getting, like he's winning races in the 1600 car and he, now he's racing a trophy truck. He's just a TV commentator. But for that group that wasn't there in off-road racing pre-94, they didn't know that I had like had huge success in the limited cars. Right. And so it just looked like this TV. Looked like you were a Looked like newbie. TV dork newbie coming out, like trying to be like splashy guy. Yeah. yeah. I am a dork. I'm, again, readily admitted. But kind of cool, you know, it probably gave you a little bit more um, press maybe because they're like sure Who is this guy oh yeah they still use x game commentator sometimes in some of the press release stuff like it's just part of it you know and i am still an x games commentator because my events are on x games i have two shows a year that are on world of x games okay and they air on espn or espn2 so 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 why do you not do x games themselves anymore any stuff like that i i, I wanted to ask you this um because i i commentated i did color commentary for the nationals in 06 which happened to be a great yeah, a lot of fun, right? Great summer. Uh, you know, it was James and Ricky just going at it. Was I there? Was I in the booth? No, it was uh, Brian Drebber, who was, uh, he had done some. That was after me? I, yeah, it must have been after you. Oh, six. I don't remember the years, like I was saying. <clears throat> I think after you. I think after. So uh, he was pulled in from like car racing and, and uh, short track motorcycle racing, different stuff like that. And they brought me in and. Um, I remember when I got the deal, David Bailey pulled me aside and he goes, Hey, this was after he'd kind of gotten just let go for no reason. Yeah. I was the one that took the heat that everybody thought took David's job, but David didn't, I, I'm not sure how David's departure happened. But. Well, I don't know the specifics. He just told me he still wanted to do it. I think that was really keeping him, uh, mentally healthy and, and giving him something to really do and he was great at it he was i, I still think I, he's one of the best i still think he might be the best straight race caller there is in our sport i and, and with the willingness to say what he's thinking yes yeah I, mean, I just don't see anybody that can break down what they're watching and why and how like you said the the how the why the you know what the who man he could just pull stuff out and um i, I loved watching him listen to him anyway he said be very careful because there's no loyalty in this you'll be cruising along and think, oh, I'm going to make a career of this. And then gone there, you're gone. And so I heeded that warning and I, and I only did the one year and then I never even pursued it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I was any good or whatever, but I, I wondered if you, did you get that warning? Did you think this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to be, I'll be a commentator. I, you know, 
maybe at one point I did feel like I was going to be a commentator and that was something I was going to focus on um, because I wasn't riding anymore. Um, I had been started racing cars again, but at one point, you know, I was probably doing 80 to 100 shows a year and uh, different stuff. I was doing, you know, all kinds of different events. Um, maybe not that many, but I think that's my recollection. Maybe that was when I was with Lucas Oil, how many shows I was doing. But um, I kind of got... I kind of got the feeling that I was a commentator when I was doing Supercross, Motocross, then with the IndyCar series, doing both X Games and all their properties. So there was probably a while there I felt like a commentator. I never, I never um, called anybody to get a job at another group. Yes, I was fortunate to have ESPN suggesting me on different stuff, um, and I built a lot of relationships in surf and moto and freestyle and racing cars. So there's a lot of good fitment. Um, personality wise with people. Um, but I kind of, I kind of got the sense by about, and I could have my years a little off. Um, but I kind of got the sense after the circuits of the America X games, which I think might've been 17, 16 or 17. I could be wrong. It could be 14 and 15. Um, I kind of got the sense after that, um, ESPN had, um, there were some different production people coming in and it was changing a little bit. And, uh, I kind of sensed that, they were going to move on most of the old guard or the, you know, established commentators. And I kind of saw it coming. And at the same time, I think that I'd kind of had enough, mm -hmm. um, you know, after you travel 45 weekends a year, um, long enough, it's like it burns you out. Yeah. And so what happened for me, I had a really great, um, opportunity. Um, we got sponsored, our race team got sponsored by Lucas Oil because my wife was a champion off road, road racer which attracted Lucas Oil and they became a big partner of ours. And at the same time, they were propelling this off-road series. And I had done a little bit of announcing for the championship off-road series. And so when Lucas was forming, I want to say back in maybe nine or eight, eight or nine, they offered me a commentator's position as an expert. You know, I don't know if the exact word, there's, you know, there's a host and then there's a play-by-play. -play. There's a play-by-play -play and then there's an expert for the sport usually. And I was fortunate to get that job and, and that turned into tons of, tons of work with Lucas Oil. And so what I did is I started telling people <clears throat> that wanted me to fly over the Rockies or other places I, that I wasn't going to do it unless it was a really good reason to do it. Like either paid really good, it's a real historical moment in the sport or legendary race. Like I went to Switzerland a couple times <clears throat> to commentate and be around that when the World Supercross was there. Those are good reasons to go. Mm -hmm. But I started like staying closer to home and I um, started a family. Um, also had traumatic um, situation in my life where Jeff died on one of my rides. He's like my son and uh, was really crushing for me. I didn't, I felt like um, a lot of the anxiety that I'd felt years before got really accentuated and was, I started to turn in on myself and um, I didn't really want to go do all those mm -hmm. events anymore. But Lucas Oil was there, and we were doing 85 shows a year, and it was like, you know. So you were doing, like, car racing, oh, just everything? I was doing not a ton of everything, but they had so many car races that were on TV every day. And the guys that raced short course had, really had no idea how much TV Lucas was putting into it. Mm. You know, like, everybody's like, ah, this, ah, that. But, man, you should see all the content they're putting out. And anyway, I was real fortunate to be able to do that. But at the same time, I, I went in there maybe um, – I want to say it was like nine. I started there and I, I stayed there till 18. Hmm. 
That's a huge, huge rise. So you had two big runs, kind of ESPN and then Lucas. Then Lucas. And so what I did while I was at Lucas is I was like, I was driving 40 minutes to do voiceover sessions and I was flying all to the West Coast mostly. So it was really pretty cushy. Mm -hmm. Like it was pretty easy. And I wasn't asking anybody for jobs anywhere. And I never had really done that. ESPN kind of propelled me into those things. So I still like did the World X Games in 13. I did all four events. I did the X Games through 17 or 18. Um, but I wasn't picking up other work. I did IndyCar and Champ Car. I don't know what my last year. When Champ Car went out of business, that's when I left for uh, open wheel racing. But uh, eventually in 18, Lucas Ola just said, hey, we're not doing this anymore. I was like, damn, that's, that's a big hit. You know, going from 85 or 100 TV shows a year to five. Yeah. That's a big financial hit, first of all. And at the same time, lost my sponsorship, Lucas, uh, which, was, which was another massive hit. Um, you know, that was a big surprise to me. And so uh, I had to take a minute and recoil and try to figure out what the hell I was going to do. And um, I saw an opportunity to just start my own media company, just doing small jobs, creating my, I was already creating my own television and I just expanded my race team footprint, started racing more, started doing more stuff for social media was starting to pop at the time, obviously. And um, I just chameleoned into being full-time off-road racer mm. and, and doing my own media company. So now we've done work for, you know, Toyota, and uh, BF Goodrich, Monster, do the X Game shows. We've done prop um, TV shows for CBS Sports. So really fortunate, you know. I have, so you're um, creating content or commercials for Toyota, like that's. I was. I did. I did some work for Toyota over the years. I'm not currently doing any work. Okay. For Toyota. But that's what you. When you say media company, you are yeah. creating content for these brands. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and most of it revolved around hosting trips in different places, and we're still hosting adventure trips. We host like eight or nine trips a year. We host maybe 500 people a year. Uh, Rip to Cabo is in its 19th year. Last year we had 42 riders ride the peninsula, produce an hour TV show, you know, over a million interactive users during the show on social media. Not trying to just pump ourselves up, but it's just... Um, hey, you've done, a, you've I saw, done an awesome job. I saw, the, I saw the light when I was a professional bodyboarder um, that being professionally unemployed or doing what you wanted for a living was like a godsend. Being able to be paid to ride waves, I was like, wow. And I did go on to sell cars. So I saw the other <laughs> You saw the darkness. <laughs> I saw I saw the I saw the meat grinder of being on the lot all day long selling cars. And I was really good at it. I was a salesman of the year at McPherson Chevrolet. And um after that I decided I was gonna I was gonna just keep doing fun things and try to create places for me to work and live. And I've uh, been fortunate enough to be able to, I call it sharing the stoke, but sharing our lifestyle, whether it's motorcycling, e-biking, surfing, mm. racing cars, off-roading, ETVs. I, you know, this last year we worked for Can-Am and BF Goodrich and Monster, and we're doing all kinds of different stuff. And been fortunate enough to be paid to race cars and be a personality and create content and um, it's been able to sustain our family for the, since 2018. Well, that that in itself is kind of eye-opening to me. I always assumed, wrongly apparently, that Baja racing, trucks, I don't care what classic car, doesn't matter. That's the way you spend money. It like, is. <laughs> there's just no way to make money racing trucks. I just, I've watched 
enough of these guys from Deegan to Jeremy to just any of them. It's like, it's a rich man's playground. So for you to have been able to get into that, like 20, you said, do you love years of and generate a truck. living out of it? Like 20 is, years of unlimited truck racing and still racing at the highest level. I mean, you can argue who's the best in the sport, but we finished fifth this last weekend out of 37 in the trophy trucks and trophy truck legends, whatever. And, um, we're relevant and, yeah. and I love it and I love Baja and I love the people. And I think that my engagement with the people, one of the things I always told the guys when they're signing autographs is to look at every person and acknowledge them and talk to them. And it makes a huge difference in your life because you're engaging with people, but it makes a huge difference in their life. Yeah. I have people in Baja coming up to me. They're 25 years old showing me pictures of me and them together when they're like five. That's crazy. Do you ever have like a bad, like a fan come and go, oh, you were a dick to me one time? No. Yeah. I'm sure it's happened. Everybody has their days, well, right? Well, so this is, the, I would always, uh, that was a big thing to me was just to try to be, I appreciated the position I was in if someone even wanted an autograph from me. But when it's race day and you're like so screwed into just what you're doing and like what you have to do and all that pressure and all the other stuff, like, and I tell this to people all the time who get bummed out. Oh, I went, I went to this signing and so-and-so didn't, you know, like, well, this was a once in a lifetime deal for you. He does this every weekend. Right. He's being pulled a million different directions. I just give him a little bit of grace, you know, give him a second chance. I, I try to tell people that. Yeah. I had a little epiphany on that this weekend. I was at the start line of the Baja 400. Um, you know, I'm like kind of getting in the zone, right? I got, I'm like, just me and my navigator there with the race truck and obviously all the other race trucks. And these people want you to sign autographs and I'm doing it. And like, I'm just thinking, you know, like, uh, this guy comes up, I already have my gloves on and he wants me to sign this autograph. I'm like, Oh, and then I got to touch my face and my helmet. And like, so I'm starting like my brain spinning. I'm like, I do all the autographs. I smile, take the pictures with the kids, but sometimes you got, you're like somewhere else a little bit, you know, like I'm about to drive this truck that goes 150 miles an hour through the desert for five hours as fast as I can, more or less, without breaking it. But the intensity of that for that time frame is pretty crazy. So yeah. that morning when you get up, you have breakfast, you're around your guys, but it's you're kind of cocooned in and you're kind of focused on what you're going to do. Yeah. So sometimes it's a little tough, you know, like you're getting strapped in the car and someone's like not trying to hand you a pen inside the net of the race car. When the net's up, that should be a good it's, indication. It's, it's like, work hey, time, right? Maybe leave this guy yeah. alone. Yeah. In auto racing, if the if the driver leaves their helmet on, that means no interview. Oh, okay. So, but well, yeah, super fortunate. I've created a lifestyle um, over forty now, at least. <laughs> Maybe time of fifteen years over. But uh, I've been super fortunate to be able to have a ton of friends and just create jobs and create fun and. Yeah. Worked for all these different brands, you know, whether it's a Man. team launch at Kawasaki or a freestyle motocross event or traveling to Europe. Um, I did all that because of action sports and my position as a professionally unemployed, so to speak. Well, I mean, to your point, like being able to do what you loved and, you know, people always said, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But yeah, I still work. How many people really can do that? Like, I love what I do, but still work if i if i could make a living doing what i love someone would pay me to lay by my pool and you know surf and mountain bike occasionally you know what i mean like yeah. no i hear you it's still work i mean <laughs> it's still work. it's still work i understand what you're saying but i have a pat we have passions for what we do and so 
you get out there and do it, you smile and you're fortunate, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of people that wish they could do what you do. Yeah. I, I, I get it. Trust me. We get project bikes and I'm like, I get to ride this all year. Yeah. It's epic. Just getting free bikes is like, yeah, I need some bikes by the way. Do you? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I need some bikes. <laughs> And we're on TV. I mean, we can we do a lot for yeah, manufacturers. But we, we don't wear a Yamaha shirt and, uh, you know, point Maybe. I, I can't even remember the last time I rode a Yamaha. I was trying to think about that. When I saw your Yamaha, I rode them when I was little. but I, When they were yellow? Yeah. yeah. And then I rode Suzuki's because I was sponsored by Suzuki. Then I rode Hondas. And I'm still riding the Hondas. I ride some Gas Gas, too, a little bit on my hard enduro bikes of Gas Gas. They got a brand new, uh, uh, like an off-road model to get you on it maybe they need to sponsor ripped cabo mm. was that ripped to the tip was that yeah something it used it? to be called okay ripped to the tip. yeah okay so uh we changed the name a lot of people thought that we changed the name because jeff died on that trip in 2011 it probably did play into it a little bit but it wasn't very descriptive so you couldn't really rip to the tip everywhere you rode and we were already um, a little innu- innuendo in that yeah too, a little yeah. bit maybe it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> because you call it the tip of, you know but we do now you know we've done ripped to costa rica ripped to iceland uh, ripped Portugal, we did Rip to Greece last year, we're going to Australia next year. So we host international trips to create Jeez. media around them and have some fun. So it's been a, a hell of a ride. Yeah. Uh, listen, we're going to take a fast break here. This is your Troy Lee Designs timeout. Stick around. We're going to be back with more Cameron Steel. There's a new product on the market that's going to help you with your riding and racing, and it's Elevate Action Sports. If you've not yet gone and checked it out at ElevateActionSports.com, it's a collective of riding coaches, the likes of which has never been put together. Grant Langston, Ryan Hughes, Jeff Emick, Johnny Campbell, and myself, David Pingree, bringing all of our years of experience in professional racing to one place with professionally produced videos and all kinds of supporting staff to help you with your mental side of racing, your physical side, your bike setup, your bike maintenance. We cover it all. Get to Elevate Action Sports right now and join the community. Dunlop. There is a reason every AMA championship in the past decade was won on Dunlop tires. They are the best. Choose the best performing tire and a brand that has never wavered in their support of our sport. Choose Dunlop. Pro Circuit. Pro Circuit products are designed with one goal in mind, winning. Through passion and hard work, Pro Circuit has operated the most successful 250 team in the history of the sport. They use that same formula when developing exhaust, engine, and suspension parts for every brand. When only the highest level of performance is acceptable, trust Pro Circuit. Since 2009, Seat Concepts has been dedicated to making the best aftermarket seats. More comfort, more grip, more riding. For 10 years, we've continued to raise the bar. Innovation and American craftsmanship make Seat Concepts the world-leading manufacturer of power sports seats. Something from nothing. That's what Nihilo Concepts is about. It starts with a spark, an idea, a concept, which leads to a design and finishes with engineered excellence with the highest quality products created with durability in mind. 
All our products are made in the USA at our state-of-the-art facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you are a weekend warrior, ride for fun, or at the highest level of competition, Nahilo Concepts offers innovative titanium, aluminum, and carbon fiber parts for your dirt bike. We offer a wide variety of products that you can customize to your liking. Browse our site for foot pegs, brake tips, engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, lever grips, carbon fiber components, motor stands, our secondary on-switch, plus much more. Head to NahiloConcepts.com and see for yourself why factory teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs Gas Gas, Orange Brigade, Club MX, KLM Gas Gas, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nahilo Concepts. Specialized Bicycles. Specialized leads the way in the world of bicycling. Whether it's cross-country racing, downhill, e-bikes, enduro, road, gravel, dual slalom, dirt jumping, or all mountain bikes that do it all, Specialized has the perfect ride for you. The brand is synonymous with engineering excellence and innovation that steers the industry. Visit your local Specialized dealer for a test ride and see just how good Specialized products are. With a rich history in motocross, ProX has been dedicated to supplying quality components since 1975. Whether you're rebuilding an engine or just need a new chain, ProX Racing Parts aims to bridge the gap between OE quality and affordability. ProX has over 9,000 part numbers and over 60 different product types that are manufactured by highly reputable or even OEM suppliers and are offered at affordable prices to help keep riders on the bike instead of in the garage. Visit ProX.com to search parts for your bike or check them out at your favorite online or local dealer. Audio the guys are just breaking in their race bikes, which will leave on the semi this Saturday to go to the first Supercross for our coast in Orlando. Uh, so the guys are just be goofing off a little bit, do some cool photos, do some cool videos. When you go racing, you want to do well, but a big key is keeping the bikes on the track. That's why we chose to work with Motul. Expectations coming in as a rookie is just to try and get my feet wet and uh, honestly just send it, see where I end up and uh, do my best out there, but just ride aggressive and ride like myself in practice and I uh, should have a good time. Challenges of this sport, I believe, is just simply staying healthy. Uh, with how fast we're going um, and what we're doing, your margin for mistake is really, really small. Stay sick. If you have little rippers, then you have had to have seen Stay Sick Bikes by now. We have created bike and experiences that allow kids to develop sooner and empower them to find their own ride. From learning to ride to sharpening skills, the Stay Sick promise is accelerated growth. Whatever path your family chooses, it's going to be the ride of your life. Stay Sick Stability Cycles. vacation every single day cuz i love my occupation hey i'm on vacation if you don't like your life then you should go and change it all right welcome back everybody that was your Troy Lee designs timeout if you guys have not seen what Troy Lee designs is doing lately get over to their website look at uh, some of the gear they've got out all the new fall line is is available 
They've got mountain bike gear. The paint department's cranking. Uh, lots of stuff over there to take advantage of, so check them out. Um, let's get back into your story here, bud. You mentioned this earlier, but I, I didn't had no idea of this. Your wife is a champion off-road racer as well. Mm -hmm. How did you guys meet, and how was she already racing? No. Uh, we met, uh, true story, I was a professional bodyboarder, and a guy that lived from inland L.A. moved down to San Clemente, and he wanted to be a bodyboarder, and so he invited some of us over to his house. He was probably... 19 i was probably this 20 and uh, he had a skate ramp and i just never forget it uh he had like these cheesy beads in the kitchen door and this blonde girl walks out and i was like oh stunning i was like wow so that was um probably in 87 or 8 or something like that okay and uh so i met her i broke my foot on the ramp that day was he she, dating her he was dating her okay they were high school uh, he had graduated. She was a junior or senior still. And uh, over the years, she she liked San Clemente so much, she moved there with her girlfriends. And she, they convinced her parents uh, that they were going to move to go to Saddleback and they needed to have housing. So they got them to buy a place in San Clemente or get a place in San Clemente. So anyway, I ran into her a few times over the years, but uh, long story short, too late. Um, I was at a trade show and her girlfriends were there with her. Uh, 10 years later, almost on like 87 or 88, I met her in, in 97 or 98, 97. Her girlfriends invited me to a trade show party and I, I see her and we had like seen each other over the years and kind of had a little thing kind of, but she had a serious boyfriend and I had a serious girlfriend and I just clicked. And so in, uh, first started dating her in December, uh, September of 97, got engaged in December, bought a house in April, February, moved in in April, got married in August. And Man. been together 25 years. boy. Yeah. So she had never camped. She'd never been off-roading. She never rode a dirt bike before. So she was city girl. She was, yeah, beach girl type thing. You know, I, she knew me from riding waves. Like I was at the championships in San Francisco one year. She happened to be there, you know, so she was into the surf thing. And so, um, we started dating and, and I got back into moto pretty heavy. Um, 90, this, I was in moto pretty heavy. I'd been hurt a couple of times, but I was riding and, um, she's like, we started going back to the races in 03 and she's like, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to the races and watching. I'm not going to be that wife. I'm like, okay, well in 04, we, we put her in a free run car and started, got her in a small race. And next thing I know, She's like uh, winning the sportsman championship in the score series, which is the ball series. She raced all a thousand ball 500 with a couple of my neighborhood kids who are still real tight with us. They raced. I was racing maybe trophy truck then and she's racing sportsman class. She wins a championship. We're like, well, next year you're going to race pro class and trucks. And we got our truck. It was a little bit of a stumbling block. Oh, five by oh six. She won championship in the midsize trucks, So V six trucks. Okay. And, uh, I was like, dang. And, and it was popping. People were like, cause there was no women racing at the time. Really? How'd she get so good? I mean, she had no background. Just, just hanging around, going pre-running with us and showing her the ropes. Like she'd come pre-run with me and we'd spend time in the, in the desert. This before we had kids and we had great partners and great navigators and great people around the program that just helped, helped her learn. Huh. And so she went on to, um, she won double championships in 08. 
um, and was the Dirt Sports Driver of the Year, the only woman to ever win that title, only woman to ever win the Dirt Driver of the Year for off-road motorsports. And um, she ended up winning a couple more championships. She's won three ball and thousands, five off-road championships, the double championship year in 08. And then what happened was she got to be so popular and so good at it and the natural progression. I bought a new trophy truck. We had my old trophy truck. So in 13, we moved her to trophy truck, which is the unlimited class, you know, 130 miles an hour, but you know, big horsepower, big, big responsibility. Were you nervous about putting her in that Big car? crashes. Yeah. Uh, I was nervous. We had a small child at the time. Um, our daughter was two and Heidi started racing a trophy truck and it was all gravy at first. It was all good. She finished in the top 10 of the points. She finished top 10 ball 1000, um, in trophy truck, her and her partner, Jessica McMillan. And uh, Kurt McMillan's uh, Andy dealer. Scott, Andy and uh, Andy's sister, and Luke and Dan's cousin. Okay, uh, desert race, but of that family. same fa- same McMillan's McMillan. from San Diego. <clears throat> and um, in 2014, they didn't have as much success, but they did. They were doing pretty well, and they had kind of a, a bummer. Baja 1000. They they finished like maybe 15th or something like that. They were kind of like a little bit down, and I was like. Um, Hey, why don't you take the truck out and race it um, at this year-end race for Best in the Desert? And they don't have any pre-running. And so she went out and raced, and she was having a good race, and she ended up hitting a hole going like 100 miles an hour and crashed the truck. It didn't damage the chassis. I was at the race, and I got a call from the medic group, and they said, hey, we checked Heidi out. She's all good. But she had a big end of a big crash. I mean, we're talking about a 6,000-pound truck you know, rolling through the desert a hundred miles an hour. And uh, what ended up happening is she had a concussion and it was pretty serious. Um, it got to the point where she couldn't really even stand up, um, without like feeling like she's going to fall over and having black spots. And, um, is this after some time, this, this progressed after a couple of days and it got worse, but what ended up happening is it took her, you know, a year and a half later, She's still having these kind of like not big moments, but a year later, still having these moments like where she gets up. And so we just decided at that point, we're going to take a hiatus. The baby was four and let's, you know, we're going to have another kid. Let's, let's, she's going to take some time and not race. So she hasn't raced since, um, but she had never been in the desert. She never camped, never done any of that, but she's so focused and so amazing at the way she takes things on and she owns her own human resource company. And um, has great clients, and she was a big executive there, and she decided to go ahead and do her own thing instead. But she's just, um, I think women naturally, if they commit to something, they have a little bit better uh, focus. And I think that they can really uh, take apart what needs to be done and, and do it well. And I think, to her credit, she really did that very well. She she figured out how to do it, dissected it, and went out and did it every time with her best effort. And had just amazing success. And uh, like I said, I think w- the women are a little better. Now there's more women racing off-road. Still not a ton. Um, but I think she definitely set a precedent for the ladies. And um, there were some ladies that led, predated her, that gave her the inspiration. And I think she gave a lot of inspiration to a whole group of other ladies that are out there. That's right. Yeah. So she had a lot of success. I miss having her race. I actually asked her um, a couple weeks ago about going racing. I think she has an interest. Um, I think once our younger daughter maybe gets to be around five, it'd be a little easier. But right now, you know, oh, take, you got a fresh one. We got a new one. We got a three-year-old. 
So we're, uh, yeah, it took us a while to get to number two. Um, but unfortunately, and, um, but it's an awesome ride and now she's mom and she owns her own company and she still supports the desert assassin. She's still a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, she was just actually hosting the live webcast for score this weekend. Oh, that so right? I got almost as many messages congratulating me for being in the top five <laughs> as them saying, dang, your wife did a great job on the live webcast. Yeah. Right. That's cool though. Her wins are yours, right? Yeah. I mean, I, she won the class chick six championship, which was unlimited midsize trucks in 2011, maybe. And we made jackets and I got a jacket. I mean, I was part of the team. I helped organize it. I didn't drive the truck, yeah. uh, but we did drive together to win a mint 400 as a team in 2010. So okay. that's the only race we ever drove together. And we did win the mint 400. Uh, in the midst, and of I just saw race. something where that race it was kind of had eluded you for a long time. Like, it, yeah, I had issues there. I still have never won the overall first place. We won the midsize truck class that year. Um, I've been second. I've been the runner-up on the mid four hundred. So we're uh, one spot off the top in the box. We achieved the goal at the Nora Mexican one thousand and the Baja one thousand to win. I would really like to tick the box on the mid before I retire or quit. Mm -hmm. We have the perfect truck for it. It's a rougher race, and I think the two-wheel drive really has an advantage there. The problem is it doesn't fit in the schedule very well. It's mm. right on top of the San Felipe 250, which is our kickoff Baja race every year. Uh -huh, okay. So, we'll so you see. don't always get to do it. You, yeah, it's either budget-driven or the truck's not ready or the schedule's just too tight. So it's uh, our Baja races are primary, and then we pick some other races around. Plus, we race King of the Hammers in the Ultra 4 car for laser nut racing. And so that takes up a lot of time in January and February. What is it like crashing one of those? You, you, I'm, I'm assuming you had a big yeah. tumble. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I've never even been in a car crash that's rolled over. So I always wonder what it's like if you're doing a hundred and hit a hole and the thing just comes unwound. Do you kind of like it? Just everything's a blur and you try to like hold your yeah. You you, you want to bring your arms in for sure. Um, once it's gone. And you know you're not going to save. You take your hands off the steering wheel. Um, try not to let them flop around. But uh, the good news is all of my cr bigger crashes have been dissipating crashes so that I didn't run into anything. There was no sudden stop, which the sudden stop is what's really dangerous. Yeah. That's one thing that off-road racing is very fortunate about is there's a lot of open area to dissipate the crash. Uh, I had a big one at the Mint 400 qualifying, endoed the car in qualifying practice at 35 miles an hour, did a double nose endo. It's 35? 35. It's the most famous picture of us upside down going backwards with the dirt flying off the front bumper. Um, had a couple others, had, a, had another one during qualifying going probably 70 across the finish line, slid and flipped. Um, but I, I've had maybe five or six decent crashes, most all side over only one big endo that one uh, 35 miles an hour and it, it was a stinger for sure huh. destroyed the truck we did race two days later but we shouldn't have the truck was screwed up but yeah the feeling of rolling the car which if i had to guess just off the top of my head i've probably rolled you know eight times in my life uh, it's pretty surreal because the thing that you it, uh, i could compare it a little bit to a moto crash when you're like uh, thinking you hit a timing section perfect and all of a sudden you're flying off the bike. It's different than a motorcycle where you're holding it wide open and you like start to break loose and crash. But when you're in a timing section, you think you got it, all of a sudden you're flipping over the bike. That's kind of how the release feels in the flip of the car. It it just all of a sudden like you're you're you know you're leaning into it usually, like you're going for it, 
but you don't expect it. Like you wouldn't do it if you thought you were going to crash, right? right? You you believe you got it, go, got it, got it. Oh. You believe you're going to achieve it, and then all of a sudden, oh shit, you're not going to make it. Mm. So it has this kind of like weird, like all of a sudden it's gone. And usually in the trucks, it has to do with the back end breaking free of the berm or, or coming out of the berm and coming around on you, and then you start tumbling. So it's a real surreal feeling. But I, like I said, I equate it to like a bike ejection where all of a sudden you've lost control and it's like you're kind of along for the ride, even more so on the bike. On the bike, you can kind of try to figure out where you're going to land. You know it's going to hurt no matter what. In the truck, generally speaking, you hope it's not going to hurt. Um, but it's a really uh, surreal feeling cause you have no control. Mm-hmm. You can't like maybe ride it. You can't flip your body to you're, land you're on your totally feet. along for the ride. You're totally along for the ride. Once it's gone, it's, it's gone. And it's, you know, sometimes like a couple times I've rolled, I'm like, okay, that's, you know, you can tell you've gone over once pretty hard and it's starting to dissipate and you're like, okay, it's going to stop. But then it keeps going. You're like, shit, uh-huh. you know, then, and then when it starts slowing down the roll, cause you know, the roll always slows down. You're like, stop on the wheels, stop on the and if the truck's running and you get to the wheels, you can kind of, you could gas it and try to get it to right itself. But, uh, I haven't had that success. <laughs> you haven't been that lucky. No, I haven't been that lucky. Um, do you guys wear Hans devices? Yes. Okay. Yes. Head neck restraint. We've been doing that. Uh, I want to say we started doing that in about nine or 10. Okay. And now it's mandatory. It didn't become mandatory in off-road racing until maybe six years ago. Mm. But Yes. It's a big part of it, you know, um, when you're in the truck, depending on how tight you have your tolerance, you know, like if you're pounding big bumps in this trophy truck at hundred miles an hour, you can feel it because you're, you're catching on your restraint. But if you, if you, it's really for, if you hit a big, if you hit the bumper, if you really have a big stop, or if you're on the brakes hard and you hit the bumper, that, that can really, uh, snap your neck yeah. pretty hard. So Yeah. Head and neck restraint. I, I don't ever get in the car. There's some people that will test without all their full gear. I don't ever get in the car without my full gear. My shoes, my driving suit, my neck restraint, my my neck guard. Um, a lot of people don't know. They think the skirt is to keep the dirt from flying in, you know. But the dirt, the skirt is to keep the fire from coming in. If you catch on fire and you're taking a breath, you want the air from inside your helmet yeah. before you pull the fire pin. And you don't want to breathe fire. And you can, yeah, I don't have to tell you you're a fireman. Yeah, yeah. Just takes one breath of superheated air and you're you're dead. Yeah, yeah. There's no saying that. Um, so how did Heidi get that concussion? Is that just because the car stopped? I mean, the, even though the thing stops you, you, no. What happened was it was a mistake on our team's part. She went nose in and and pirouette endoed. Okay. And when she hit, there was a bag, a parts bag in the in the there was oh. a tray behind the seats. And all these bags are like Velcroed in, right? Well, when she hit super hard, the bag came unvelcroed and hit her in the back of the helmet. So she was going forward and and hit on her neck restraint, stopped and hit her in the back of the head. That's what gave her the concussion. Yikes! Yeah, probably right. You know, back here on the side of your behind your chest. Have a big old ding on the helmet too. Uh, I can't remember to be honest with you. Probably. We did take the helmet to the neurologist when we went, but hmm. Yeah. Crazy. Um, crazy stuff. Dangerous. But yeah, well, you know, they always say with age comes a cage and like guys will go from bikes to side by sides. And mm-hmm. so you, you think it's safer and I suppose it is, but there's still a danger doing 150. I don't care what the cage is made of. For right? sure. No matter, anytime you put a helmet on, it's probably dangerous. That's why they wear helmets. Yeah, that's right. And we have to be told to wear them. 
Not me. I put them on. I'm smart. Smarter than that, I think. Tell me about your win on the Baja 1000. Wow. 2018. I mean, this had to be a, a culmination of a lifetime of going down there and trying to do this. My family's lifetime. Yeah. Really. I mean, my dad started in 71 trying to achieve that goal. And uh, what's crazy is that um, in 2017, the year before we won, I was convinced we were going to win. It was a peninsula run. We had been had a lot of synergy with Baja. I actually flew my wife and daughter to the finish line and my dad, and I was going to retire after we won. And um, we finished second. Oh. And uh, I was like, oh, crap. You know, like I had this plan, like I'm kind of over it. I'm maybe going to be done. And my wife was there, and I think she was. she knew what was happening. I hadn't told her. And my daughter was there. She, I got across the finish line and had like maybe a minute before the going up on the stage for the commentating for the finish line. It's daylight in the pause. The winner had been there for 30 minutes. Like we got beat soundly. Mm-hmm. They were already off the podium. So like there was time, it was time for me to go up and do the interview. So I had about 45 seconds from when my wife handed me my daughter to what I was going to say on the microphone. And I realized that I had spent my entire life going to the races with my dad and that it was the most special interaction that brought us together, seeing my dad compete, seeing my dad have these goals and sharing that with me. All the people I, met, I know I met through my dad. Mm. And um, in that instant, I felt like I was going to take that from my daughter if I quit. And also, shit, I we just got second. And I really believe that we had the team and we really did have a great team and we really do still. And, um, I decided not to do it. Um, that next year, uh, unfortunately my dad died in a four before I won a oh. thousand. He, he saw me, he saw us win the Nora Mexican 1000, which is a little bit lesser race, still peninsula run. And, um, right after his death in July, I won the next score race in Baja, which was called the Tijuana Desert Challenge. I was like, damn, I can't believe my dad wasn't here. And I and I also couldn't believe, like sometimes you peak, like, oh, we got there and then, you know, winning two in a row is not easy to do in trophy truck. Not easy to win one. And um, I'm like, damn. And then also was uh, 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 put into the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. So my dad missed that. And they had like this big presentation with my dad talking they had interviewed him about it before he died i'm sure he knew that i was getting in um but i really wanted to get that win in 18 and so we had a phenomenal team we had an interesting run we lost first gear at mile 90 which generally means you've lost reverse too so you can't back up if you make a mistake we're racing our asses off we're in the top four or three whatever you know, I get to my driving partner. The way we did it that year is I started and finished. My buddy Pat Dean drove the, a big middle section. And I told them on the radio, I'm like, hey, on the race radio, I'm like, hey, we have no first gear. And I know you guys know that might mean we don't have reverse. You're going into this remote, silt bed, super gnarly night section. It's up to you if you want to change the training. But we brought the truck there in third place. And they're like, they jumped in the truck and took off. I'm like, well, we'll see what happens. And I'm like trying to sleep in the car and I do. And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, there's this really tight turn, like 80 miles from the finish line that I'm going to have to do without backing up. So anyway, he gets through his section. He comes in, we're third. I'm like, wow, you know, we're podium position. Now we'd already been on the podium of the ball a thousand, uh, two times hadn't won. Um, 
racing through the hills last hundred miles or whatever. Uh, one of the trucks in front of us breaks. Now it's a race between myself and Rob McCachron. And, um, we are close on time at Ojos Negros. We have, we get a, we got a flat tire and it put us right there. But during the day I had seen, there was some discussion on social media because I got out of the car. There's some rules that might've been broken by some teams about passing on the highway. And so I was pretty confident there was going to be a penalty. So I was kind of driving to try to win on time, but also to understanding that if I wreck the car, I'm not going to get second or first, but there's possibly a penalty coming here for the guy that's in front of us. And that's exactly what happened. He got a penalty, 15 minute penalty, and we won the race. And, um, it was interesting because, uh, we got to the finish line and they gave us the champagne for the celebration because they already kind of knew. And I was like really hesitant to, to celebrate mm-hmm. um, because I wasn't really sure what was going on. But at the same time, I was really overwhelmed with all these like feelings that my dad had died and uh, my wife had stopped racing to give me the opportunity to focus on my racing and not worry about her. And, you know, the hundred people that are on the team, the dozens of sponsors that are paid to be there. And it's just you know, really surreal reaching that pinnacle in your sport, you know, yeah. and being at the, at that top winning two races in a row. Um, you know, we're sponsor funded. It's a lot of work to do it. And, uh, it really rejuvenated me in the belief that we should be there. And, uh, we've had a great run. We've been on the podium, all three of the last peninsula runs. We've been on the podium five times in the last seven years or something like that. Um, but winning the ball a thousand, it's like you stamp that, you know, you, you yeah. hit the mark, did it for my dad, did it for my family. Yeah. The steel name will forever be on that, no matter how it happened. That's cool. And it's it's pretty crazy to think. How neat that you got that win, the Hall of Fame thing, which I don't, I don't know the value of that to your dad, but he also wanted to be on TV. And you're a TV commentator. Yeah. I've gone TV for all these years. Yeah, he loved the TV thing. He thought it was fun and he laughed and he would, he was really good on camera and um, he rode behind my seat in the race after he died. He had his ashes in the truck. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, it was really cool to have him in there. Um, really emotional, too. But, uh, yeah, I think my dad would be stoked with the way it all went and the way it's come. He, I was real fortunate after my mom died in 97 to be able to spend, you know, I mean, we spent 20 years together uh, off-roading, yeah. going to Baja. He chased your... our trips. He'd go on all the races. He was, <clears throat> he was always there. So he was a big part of your guys' Huge. Team, yeah. Huge part. That's rad. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. He, was, he wasn't the quintessential, you know, mini dad or like, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. He was like, let's have some fun and we'll get it done when we get it done, you know? Uh, and uh, yeah, he was just a great personality. That's awesome. Super yeah. fun guy. Bummed he's gone. I was just thinking about him yesterday. Like, damn, it would be so cool if I could call my dad. Yeah, that's a sad, that's a yeah. disappointing part of life. But yeah, it's part for all of us. It is right? part. It is. It's the natural progression, right? It's like uh, got a top five, and you're like, talk to the wife, like, oh, can't call dad, bummer, you know. But talk to my daughter, and my daughter's like, dad, that's awesome, you know. So, yeah, a little different, but the roles change. Now does. you're the dad. Now the dad. Um. So tell me, tell me about um the stuff you're doing down there in Baja, because you guys have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, the Rancho Santa Marta Orphanage. Mm-hmm. 
Is Malcolm involved in that, or is that a no, different orphanage? Malcolm, ha- Malcolm and Alexander support a different orphanage. Okay. They have a different effort. Um, I hail them for their efforts as well. Um, about 15 years ago, we started a trip called the Baja Beach Bash. The whole idea behind the trip was to build positive awareness for Baja. At the time, in 2008, Mexico was getting just destroyed in the press. Yeah. And no one was going, like, you could go to any hotel and get a room anytime. Now you can't. But... Our idea was to build some awareness and make it easy for people to come and ride in Baja in the northern part. And I was doing it with Tim Morton from Baja Balmoto. Um, eventually, Johnny Campbell and I uh, started doing it together um, with some of our buddies from the Desert Assassins and, and Ken and Gene Neal from Boltford Diesel. And about 11 years ago, came up with a different platform on how to raise the funds and try to spool it up. Because what we were doing originally is we were taking you know, $50 from every entry and giving it to the orphanage and the kids. Um, Rancho Santa Marta is a, is a wonderful place. Um, these people are giving, given their life by, through Christ to these kids, uh, Bill Lawrence and his wife, Kay, coincidentally, my daughter's name, um, they started this four years ago mm. and, uh, they've gone on to, <clears throat> they house as many as 50 orphans at a time, some legal uh, limit in Baja. They also bus in 250 kids a day that are could be hard learners. It's like a hard learner school. They have classes for autism and blind kids and deaf kids. And, um, you know, in, in Mexico, they don't have as many opportunities. Um, so this ranch has developed in San Vicente, which is about four hours south of the border. And um, these people don't take a dime from it. And they are the most amazing human beings. Kay and Bill are in their 80s now. Their daughter runs the ranch. She was born there. And her husband is the director of the ranch, a guy named Rod, Rod and Tina. And they, they live it every single day. They're adopting kids that will never get adopted. They take them, they take them and they give them the gift of hearing. Right now they're just giving a, a girl a gift of hearing in the States. And um, it's really hard to adopt kids in Mexico, I understand. I don't know all the rules, but, you know, with human trafficking and all the different things, it's hard to adopt. And so these these kids, I don't want to say they're the cast-offs, but they're the kids that, that don't have a place to go. So they've even built permanent homes for these kids when they turn 18. They they live at the ranch. They just stay. They just stay there. And so um, with Johnny and all, all our DA guys and with Bulletproof Diesel, we've been able to raise over $2 million for them in the last 11 years or so. This year we raised about $400,000, and that's through the entire off-road uh, truck, motorcycling community everybody gives it method method gives in they're they're there um but it's it's a it's a passion for me and i see what they do and i cannot stop uh, i i call everybody everybody knows in july the call's coming you're either gonna have to duck me for the whole month <laughs> or you're gonna have to get in you have to get in and i'm sorry it's just the way it is but we we do other stuff down there we we host trips all over the peninsula we bring yeah, I made a list of all the different things. There's like you got this Baja HQ thing going on now. That's our off-road Baja shop. Strong. I got there's so many things. I don't yeah. know. You got true. I didn't I forgot about Baja Strong. Okay, so there's different aspects. The Desert Assassins is really a marketing company and a media company, a racing company, a venture company. We host five or six adventures a year. Some are in trucks, some are in UTVs, and some are on motorcycles. Through those trips, we try to host uh, town events with people in Baja. We try to give back where we can. 
Um, so that's the desert assassin adventures for motorcycles. Then we have a trucks truck adventures. Like I said, the UTVs, we do e mountain bikes in September, October, usually really? it's called surf and turf. We do surf and e mountain bikes. It's an amazing trip. Um, and then we also How do, do you charge them. Uh, we charged them with generators. Honda sent us generators last time, plugged them in. And now the truck, Just a chase truck kind of, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So what we do is we'll go pick a segment. We'll ride for an hour and a half or two hours. Brian Lopes came with us. And then we'll put the, the bikes on the trucks or trailers and plug them in with the generators running and we'll drive, go wherever we're going to have lunch or go surf because you surf and bike. Uh-huh. And then you off-road to different trailheads. It's pretty ma- pretty cool. magical. Yeah, and so uh, we do that. Then Baja HQ is our off-road shop in San Juan Capistrano. So that's a consumer place. We try to make it more community-centered than shop, but people come in with their wives or families and they build their trucks, wheels, tires, shocks, suspension stuff hmm. lighting whatever you want to do we we service about 85 cars a month in there and everybody's in a good mood it's not a transmission shop no one's coming in going oh god i spend the money to fix my car everybody's like yeah i'm getting new yeah. tires or yeah this is, you know it's fun to share tell the stories our race trucks are there also so when people come down with their kids we take them out show them the race trucks and you know if people want to see the trucks we'll take them out back and show them to them it's a lot of fun and then ball strong uh, was something that we came up with uh, when Hurricane Odeal decimated the peninsula um, in 16. It's basically a reach out to the community to say, hey, this is, um, we're going to go and give back, along with Tavo Vildosla, who is a Mexican, Mexican logistics, Mexicana Logistics is the name of that company. They own a trucking company in, in Baja. Yeah. And through our attorney, who's now passed away, Oscar Ramos, we developed a way to get goods across the border load them into semis and then transport them down the peninsula to places that weren't getting support or hadn't got support. Uh, we did some smaller strike missions with trucks to go into places like our, our buddy Poncho, who lives in the middle of nowhere. We were first people he saw after hurricane Odeal three days later, he heard our trucks on the gravel road above and we we're trying to get across this big mud crossing and I heard him whistling and he came running out like two miles up the road to, to intersect us. And like, we, we took him with us to get to the next town down to bring supplies. But Ba Strong, um, we've threatened to activate it a couple times since Odile, um, but there hasn't been that kind of need. Um, Hurricane K, again, my daughter's name, last year uh, did strike pretty hard. Um, we did post on the page, and the page is there for um, people of Mexico to be able to say, hey, we need help or whatever. It's not very managed well, but if someone sends a message, we see it. Yeah. Um, so if there's a need that will activate and then the off-road community will activate. So what happened with Baja Strong is there was probably eight or so primaries. Um, and we gathered up a group of people together and there was maybe 30 people that went to Baja, but the supplies and the trucking and the cases of water, like people were sending pallets of water and we were filling semis with pallet, with water pallets and sending them down the peninsula. So that's what Baja Strong was all about. Um, you know, just a, something something to do more than just say, Oh, here's 10 bucks on yeah. my thing. You know, let's, let's go down and do it. And I can't, I can't, uh, attest to be, um, anything special, but people around us that have gathered that up and done special things for the people of Baja is, is important. You know, putting a roof on a church in Bay of LA, that's something we did feed people in San Felipe during COVID when there was no food. That's something that we helped support with Mark Post and uh, Bryce Manzi and Jesse Jones. And, um, you know, there's different, there's different times where the call to action has to be a little bit different, 
but it's something that we want to do to support when we can. And we can't support all of it. Yeah. So pick and choose what we can, stuff that we see or we're involved in or we're around, then we'll activate and get involved with it. You know? It's super interesting to hear you talk about that. We were, before you got here today, we were all having a conversation about uh, religion. And, I, and, and kind of the consensus was, I'm a Christian guy as well, but I'm really disenfranchised with religion, organized religion. And I just said, look, man, I believe the Bible is pure as the driven snow, and it, it's, it, it is what it says it is. But when you start adding men into that, you know, we, ha- we have a tendency to booger it up a thousand different ways. Sure. And so I'm always torn with, like, how do I, you know, how do I give back? How do I do my part, right? Like, my tithing, if it's not going to a church, where do I go? And we try to do different things, but, like, this is faith in action to me. Well, I appreciate that. I mean— we're, we pray before we ride every day. We pray the j- day that Jeff died. Um, but we're, we're believers. And if someone on our trip isn't a believer or doesn't want to be involved, that they can choose not to listen or whatever. But every day on every trip we pray. I pray every time before I get in the race car um, with Cody. But it's interesting you talk about religion and organized religion. What I think is, even if you don't believe, right? Someone doesn't believe in God. When someone prays and they're asking for uh, safety of others or blessings for your family. I think you're bringing together people in a common commonality that everybody wants to have good for them and their family and everybody sure. around them. Whether you believe in God or you believe in another God or you don't believe at all, I think everybody can believe in the fact that by getting together and saying we hope for this, we're spreading that gospel of good hope, positivity, positivity. Yeah. And I think that that's a, that's a good message from religion. Even if you don't believe, even if they're, you don't think there's a God, uh, you can believe in the fact that people getting together and, and asking for good things and doing good things makes sense. Yeah. And I don't, I don't fault anybody, atheist, whatever. And I don't, I don't run around with a big sign that says, Hey, I'm a Christian. Yeah. And I don't need people running around with signs that says I'm an atheist. Yeah. Just do what you do. If you want to come hang out, let's do it. Yeah. Right. Call it good vibes if you want. Yeah. We're gonna call it whatever. Yeah. 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 You yeah. see people on social media. They say, "Hey, I, I like like your good vibes." They don't want to say, "Give us your prayers." What you know, praying hands. Let's pray. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not a overwhelming Christian. I'm not. You know, I'd even call myself like a Jack Christian, right? Because I'll pray, and a minute later, I'm telling someone to go f themselves on the trip. You know, <laughs> well, it's just in traffic. I mean, that's guys, just hey, you know, and on the moto trips, I'm kind of a dick. You know, I like I talk a lot of crap. But that might be part of the attraction of the trip. I'm not really sure. But we're not perfect. Um, Like I said, getting people together for that common feeling of wanting something good or better that day, I don't see the the harm in that. I I don't either. And I know know that the people will say, oh, the government needs to get in and help these people. And I feel like that isn't government's role. I don't want to get into politics in here. I think that's people's role. When someone needs help, it's, it's... the faith communities that need to come together and help them, right? Sure. That, that is society working in harmony, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Anyway, I, I'm stoked to see you doing, this sounds like amazing work. We yeah. try. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to pick at a scab here, but this is something I did want to ask you. And this is something, there's a lot of stuff about Baja that scares the hell out of me. Sure. The racing, but even just going to Mexico, like Johnny Campbell, when he was on here, told a story of him pre-running, getting held up at gunpoint. Sure. Have you heard that story? Oh, like, yeah. Stripped him naked and told him to walk off. And I'm yeah. Like, Dude, I, yeah, I would have soiled my shorts. 
Um, but you know, we've had guys, there's been so many guys killed down there racing. Uh, I was riding for Mitch when Danny Hamill passed away and we did a whole thing at Vegas, a little missing man formation thing and a ceremony for him. And it was brutal. I didn't even know him that well, but it's like, it's part of the family, right? Yeah. And then Caselli and Ox. Oh, yeah. Um, how do you, sorry, it's choking me up. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Let me, let me pick up on that. So the way, the way I go back is out of respect for my friends that did it with me or did it before me. And, um, the way Danny and Kurt died racing, tragic. The way Jeff died on a fun ride, tragic. But at the same time, those guys all love getting on their dirt bikes and probably all loved going to Baja. And, you know, you're kind of two part questioning it. One is Johnny getting held up, the question of banditos or bad guys. And one is the lack of medical care on the other side. I think that um, you have to temper your enthusiasm on everything you do. I'm real enthusiastic about going to Baja, but at the same time, <coughs> I'm really enthusiastic about telling people that if you think it's a bad idea, it probably is. Anytime you shift into fifth gear anywhere, it's, it's, there's a lot of risk involved. In Danny's case, a, a car turned in front of him. In Kurt's case, a horse runs in front of him or a cow or something. In Ox's case, it's just in the whoops. Um, I can't say he was the, any of them were in fifth gear, but they're all riding fast. I think that um, everybody chooses their paradigm of what's good for them and what's safe for them. And it, that was a choice they made that day. And I have to, I have to say I support them being there. It crushes me. I just raced by Kurt's marker mm. this week. And I think about Jeff every morning when I wake up. But I think it would be the greatest dishonor to Jeff specifically if we stopped doing Ripped Cabo and we stopped riding our dirt bikes down there because that's what we did together. And that would be like saying, oh, it was the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous. Is there bad guys? Sure, there's bad guys. But is there bad guys here? There's bad guys everywhere. Yeah. Right? I mean, no matter where you go, no matter where you go, some percentage of the population is a bad guy or girl, whatever. Bad guy is just a term. And some percentage of the population that's the bad guys own the restaurants and own the hotels and go to that beach or do this. But they're all mixed in with you every single day. Like, right, you, you probably drove right on the freeway next to someone that shot someone before, but you don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Ignorance is bliss, maybe. Yeah. But I would say that although the healthcare is definitely not up to snuff in, in Baja specifically, I think overall the people are kinder and more accommodating than the people here in the States. Mm. And I think that even, this might sound a little weird, but I think even the bad guys have some kind of balance where they're not out there attacking racers and stuff like that or whatever it is. Um, yes, you could get hijacked. Yes, you could lose your life. Yes, your, your shit could get stolen. Um, but I don't think it's any different there than that happens in LA. Every day. It happens it happens everywhere, right? It's it's a it's a it's a matter of going into situations where people are willing to take that risk to take your stuff, and you try to pick the right situations and the right places, but you can't always be right. And people ask me all the time, "Is it safe?" No. 
Nothing's safe. No, <laughs> I already said it once in the show. Nothing is safe about riding dirt bikes. If you take it into a country that has less medical care and no helicopters coming to save anybody, it's less safe. Mm. Right? But it, it's also a magical place. The peninsula, I believe, has magical healing powers. Being out there in the middle of nowhere amongst the cardones or the cereals trees and just seeing no light pollution and just being able to be in the middle of nowhere is pretty, there's a lot of beautiful solitude there. Now, granted, I just rode the Colorado 500, which everybody should go ride because that is insane that those trails are legal, but that's another conversation. The same solitude is available in Colorado and Montana and Nevada. So pick what you want to do and enjoy yourself. I, I don't live on the edge of thinking something bad is going to happen, but I am cognizant that it could happen. Mm. And I've been involved with it. I, I've been around it. And I understand it. Um, and hopefully we put ourselves in a situation where we don't have to experience the bad parts of it. Mm. I don't know if I, def I defined or answered your question exactly. No, but you did. I just, it's just... Uh... Like I said, I know those knew those. I was friends with Kurt. I knew Danny just through Pro Circuit, mm -hmm. really. But um, I know you you knew those guys. Yeah, I did. I didn't know Danny, but I knew Kurt very well. Yeah, uh, Kurt and I had just recently had a meeting. Kurt and McGrath and Destry Abbott and I had, had sat down and talked about doing an event that I wanted to do. And those guys came to the meeting in Irvine to listen to what I had to say, and it was pretty moving to have all those guys with that much horsepower having that conversation mm. um didn't end up doing the event um i think partially because jeff died and eventually Kurt passed but um i think that jeff's passing really struck me tough on that one and i i don't think i was able to overcome that but um yeah those guys are great dudes and it's it's unfortunate it's just gnarly i i feel the same way about dakar because they lose a lot of people in that event too. And I just think, man, is this worth it? Like, but to the athlete that they think it's worth it. Yeah. And yeah. you can't ask them, right? My brother said something very poignant to me one time. And my brother and I don't talk a ton. I love him and we don't have a problem, but, um, I was really struggling with Jeff's death. And, um, I, one day I was with my brother and I said, I can't believe Jeff died riding his dirt bike. My brother was like, how'd you think he was going to die? I was like, I guess I never thought about that. <laughs> when, yeah, well, you wouldn't. You just never know when it's going to happen, right? Yeah. And, it, and it wasn't really prophetic, but it was interesting to hear his take on it, you know? And so what's better, that or a hospital bed over months and months' time? I don't, can't answer the question. I don't want to deal with either, but unfortunately, it's yeah. the fact. It's coming someday. Hmm. Not getting any younger. Yeah, sometimes just a simple... Uh, question or point like that changes your perspective you know for sure my perspective on life is you got to go out and live it and whatever's good for one person might not be good for another so you yeah. got to make your own decisions you got to weigh it out you know yeah. people call me and ask me like i said is it safe it seems pretty safe compared to what yeah what are you going to compare a grocery to? run in people, ukraine or? people said <laughs> people said chicago's the most dangerous town in the world I was in Crandon last year, and at midnight, I drove down into Chicago and got a hot dog downtown. It's, I mean, I did see some little bit crazy stuff, but not, <laughs> it wasn't insane. Yeah. Yeah. And there's people around walking around getting hot dogs yeah. and eating dinner. I mean, yes, there's bad. Yeah. There's bad everywhere. 
It's not just in Baja and it's not just in Chicago. It's everywhere. When it's you, in Orange when, County. When you guys do those tours down, do you bring a medic with you? Yes. So uh, one of the things that I was um, passionate about um, starting in about 2009, we started bringing medics with us because I realized really quickly how dangerous what we were doing was. Um, we have a medic named Ben Rosenthal who's been our lead medic. He's a, a battalion chief in San Diego. Um, he's been he's been helping supervise like our group of guys, and um, we have a really awesome group of about 12 medics. Uh, last year on Rip to Cabo, we had four riding medics. One of them broke his wrist. Four riding medics and two truck medics. Okay. So, but again, there's no perfect situation. And yes, we could have six medics with us. And you know, two years ago, we had this huge, we bit off more than we could chew. We made a bad decision, even though we'd been there a ton. We went out in the heat, rode a single track trail. Some guys started to fail, which made this group slow down took us into a hotter part of the day. We didn't have enough water and we ended up with four or five guys on the, on the ground uh, under some trees, bushes and the cow shit and the flies. <laughs> and we, we have a helicopter and the helicopter flew in with all of all the medics carry IVs, but we needed more. And we brought them in in the helicopter and brought in cold water and oranges and stuff to rejuvenate guys. Um, there, you know, we, we screwed up. I even said it on the TV show. We made a bad decision mm -hmm. as a group. We decided, and we try to make it all group decisions. Um, but like the primary group made a decision to do it and we did it and we, we didn't have to pay the ultimate price, but we were served. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, if you think it's a bad idea, it probably is make good decisions. Yeah. That's, that's almost a mantra you got to live by down there. It is. It seems that if you feel like it's a bad decision, it probably is. I, I think the same is true here, right? If you, if you're like, I had a, a buddy that died trying to race his garage door at his airport, airplane hangar, smashed him. Yeah. Like weigh out the consequences a little bit, right? Think about just, I mean, you, you're a medic, right? Yeah. You're on the, you're on the fire department. You see shit. Someone made a bad decision. Granted, a lot of it's accidents. But someone made a decision to a lot do of it's bad decisions. Made a decision to make that lane change or go 100 miles an hour or try to make this turn last second. The one that always gets me is the guy that's in the third lane and all of a sudden realizes he has to exit and just zooms across three lanes of traffic. How does that impact you and anybody else behind you? I mean, there's another exit in a mile and a half. Just get off the next exit and come back. But it's all predicated on decision making, right? So make a good decision. If you go riding dirt bikes with us, David, what I wouldn't do. So I wouldn't ride in front in fourth gear. I would ride in the group and figure out the pace and start to figure out what Baja is going to offer you. Yeah. Because we ride a lot of single track, mostly cow trails, and you can start to figure out how the cows are going to do it and what's coming and where it's going to be a turn every 25 feet because yeah. the cows don't walk in a straight line. Right. You know, and they don't make roads to nowhere. No matter how small the road is, there could be someone coming mm -hmm. and there's livestock everywhere. And that's, a unfortunate risk of racing in Baja. There's livestock everywhere. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize how much there was down there. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, two different things. King of the Hammers, which yeah. is like crawling, which is a different... Not really plan. crawling, but yes. Okay. Rock, I mean, what would you call that? Rock type? racing. Rock racing. Okay. I would call it I would call it the purest, most hardcore form of off-road racing there is. Okay. Because you mix... Desert racing, because we race desert sections to get to these rock canyons, and then you race the rock canyons where tire placement 
and really thinking about your vehicle comes into play. I think it's a little bit more cerebral than the Ball 1000, even though the Ball 1000, you really have to be on point all night, all the time. It's the longest off-road race in the world. King of the Hammers, it started off with guys that crawled the rock canyons. And then they wanted to race up the rock canyons. Then they wanted to do more rock canyons, so they connected it with dirt trails, which became more off-road style. So the cars are evolving. Uh, and the sport, that sounds like a whole new sport. It really is. Yeah. Rock racing at King of the Hammers, I think, me personally, is my favorite spectating sport to watch. Um, because you can really see it. There's 100,000 people in the desert. It's like Burning Man for off-road. It's unbelievable. And you can go to those canyons and watch. And the day before the race, you can drive the canyon if you have a crawler or an off-road vehicle or a Jeep or a UTV, whatever. Yeah. Everybody has their own flavor, right? So the UTVs race one day, then the single shock 37-inch tire guys race one day, the unlimited guys race another day, the bikes race a day. Honestly, one of the biggest misses of the whole motorcycle industry, in my opinion, is King of the Motos. Really? The whole motorcycle industry is right here in Southern California, for the most part. I mean, yeah. granted, there's companies all over the world. But the base of the off-road motorcycling happens right here, or, or dirt biking. King of the Motos is an hour and a half away. And it is a spectacular, amazing, beautiful race. It is... It's everything those hard enduros are. It's, in my opinion, with the land rush starts at, at uh, Erzberg and stuff, as a crapshoot getting through. This, everybody's going to get through, and it's tough, and it's fun, and you can, the spectators can watch it from right there. Mm. More importantly, I, I would consider myself a, you know, whatever, a B-class rider at this point. I still race it. I still go. I still oh, go. you're racing the mo motorcycles? Yeah. Or? Oh, yeah. I've raced oh. the motorcycles the last three years. I've done it five times. Uh, one time finished fourth in the non-pro class. Huh. So it is amazing. If you've never, the single track, Jimmy Lewis started a tradition out there and uh, Justin uh, Liam Leinbelter has taken it on and they provide a motorcycle race that is freaking legit. If you haven't seen it, look up King of the Motos and just look at the land rush starts going up these crazy rock faces. It is amazing. I'll have to come check it out. It our, is so our much fire fun. department covers that. Yeah. I see a bunch of San Bernardino County fire yeah. rigs out there. And I almost went one year to work it. But we've really, um, at, at Whiskey Throttle Media, kind of said, like, where can we go and really have an impact? And the off-road, motorcycle off-road world out here on the West Coast in particular, it's like the people have totally forgotten about it. And there's 12, 1,500 guys at every NGPC race. Yeah. I don't know how many people show up. I would bet there's a huge... 350 crowd. probably. Okay. There, It's an awesome sport. It's it's awesome racing, and it's a really cool community. Yeah. And it just gets no press. You know, so. what, I, you know what I like about the King of the Motos is you get to ride good off-road stuff without having to shift the fifth gear. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's pretty tight. And it's tight and technical. There are some connecting sections sometimes, but they've tried to like limit them. So... But is it like you've got to ride up the boulders that yeah, the trucks are running? Sometimes. But some but there's little crazy single tracks everywhere. Yeah. It's like you wouldn't believe it. Like I thought I knew everything. And then this year they gave us the moto course is veiled. You don't get the pre-run. Mm. The truck courses you get the pre-run for the week. The okay. cars. The moto course you get that morning or the night before. And you put it in your in your GPS, however you're gonna do it, and you you follow GPS. And it's pretty punk rock. They come up with some mm. good stuff. I walk my bike down this rock face pretty gnarly at the end of the race last year i last year there was a hundred i qualified against 130 
I want to say I qualified <coughs> 55th, and I finished the first race in 85th. Then the second final race, I did not finish. I tapped out. Jeez. Got to come ride the trails. Uh, I'll have to come check it come, out. You don't think I'm jumping into racing that? That's no, just grab an off-road bike, and we'll go up there in December, and we'll ride some trails. Okay. Yeah. As soon as the Ball 1000 is done on, on November 21st, it's all King of the Hammers for three months for me. Okay. It's a, it's a very important race. Okay. The community out there is, is amazing. We'll come up. Okay. I'll come with you. We'll go ride a little bit. All right. Sounds fun. I want to also ask about short course truck racing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't feel like you did a lot of that. I did. Um, so in 2010, Menzies Motorsports offered me a, a drive in their pro buggy, which is the unlimited buggy class. And uh, we won a number of races, one championship. And then the next year, they became a Red Bull team, and I was a monster athlete. In fact, I might have it might have been a Red Bull team when I was a monster athlete already. I wore they didn't have Red Bull in the car, and I wore my monster helmet. Can't remember exactly, but the next year I went to Stronghold Motorsports. Uh, Jeremy McGrath and Twitch were my teammates. They raced the big trucks, and I raced the midsize truck Pro Light. Okay, I believe we finished third in the championship, and we won one race and had I think six podiums, five podiums. And then the next year I chose the race that I had the opportunity to race either the truck or the buggy again. And I went back to the buggy for stronghold. And I don't, I think we finished third in the championship again. I missed the first race cause we had the, our baby. Maybe, I don't know this is a decade ago now, yeah. but yeah. So I've done some of that. I won two off-road world championships at score when they used to race them at Riverside. So this was back in 86, 87. Oh, geez. Way going way back. Baja bugs, 1600 CC Baja bugs. And that's pretty much most of my short course. So experience. why why have you guys gone away from that now? Well, most of the short course racing has been happening on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I grew up a desert guy, and I like all forms of racing, but you kind of got to, you know, if you want to do it all, you got to have tons of sponsorship, first right. of all. And you got to have tons of people and tons of vehicles, and um, it's really tough to split your time, right? So. If I was racing in Crandon, my team would have to be full go for Crandon. And then one week later, be traveling to Baja with our trophy truck set up. Yeah. So I got pretty tough to do. So you kind of have to specialize in that world. I think that if the right opportunity came up in short course, if there was like a pro two or pro four ride that opened up that I could didn't have to own the team and I could just have a sponsor come in and we could do a deal where I get to go do some engineering some testing and then go to the races, I could do that. But I couldn't bring, I couldn't activate my team and buy a shop on the East Coast or in the Midwest and do that. Now there is the gas series out here on the West Coast. Um, Dave Cole, who owns King of the Hammers, started that up a few years ago. I just, I was already so far removed from the short course um, and so focused. Um, like I turned down an opportunity to race the Dakar Rally in 17. It would have been actually 18. Um, it wasn't a free ride; it was a paid ride. But, Are you doing unnatural stuff with your hands? Yeah, really? yeah, fine. <laughs> I um, but I turned it down because I knew I needed to focus on the Baja 1000. Right? You yeah. can't you can't win the Baja 1000 in November and race the Dakar in January. And, I mean, unless you're Kurt Casale so or regret, Ricky Brabeck yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But Ricky, who's the first American to win the Dakar, he doesn't race Baja. Right. He races Rally, yeah. World Rally, and he was just a Grand Marshal at Colorado 500. But it's just too hard to like carve out all these little pieces and make sure you're doing it all at the highest level. The other thing is you're a sponsored athlete. You're supposed to be winning or be competitive for that win. And if you start diluting it, you're, I don't think you're giving everything you can over here. Like I said, if I had a great team 
that wanted to offer me a ride and I could have their engineering, their race shop and come out and drive a few times a month and then go to the races. I think you do it. Okay. But I couldn't, couldn't do it and own it. It's all just a little too specialized. I guess relating it to the motorcycle world, it's like, if you're a supercross motocross guy, you could still go do well at an off-road race. Yeah. Look at Ryan Sipes. But those guys that do it full time, that's all they do. They're going to probably be you in the long run, right? Yeah. The specialists end up winning. So yeah. If you're trying well, I mean, to Ryan Surratt had some, mm-hmm. had some good runs at the nationals, right? He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a kind of, he's become a Baja racer or off-road racer. Sorry, off-road racer, not yeah. Baja racer. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, I think a good naturally talented athlete and I think a good example is Kirk Caselli. He could win at anything he did, mm-hmm. whether it was going to, he was going to win at Dakar and he won the Baja 1000 and he, yeah. you know, he did, uh, all the local race as well. We went and did a hill climb together. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he might've won that. So he, <laughs> dude, he's a phenomenal dirt bike rider. Yeah. Phenomenal human. Yeah. Just a just really a good dude. Guy. He taught me something really clutch. Um, as a competitor, you, you sometimes you shield yourself from the other competitors, right? You're like, I'm racing against this guy. Got to watch what I say. Don't talk about the lines. I used to tell everybody to be safe at the races instead of saying good luck. Cause I didn't feel like I genuinely meant that. So I was talking to Kurt one day and we're, and this was early on in our relationship and he knows I'm best friends with Johnny Campbell, but he also knows that he can talk to me about every line on the race course. Cause I've been in Baja my whole life and I have a pretty good understanding. So we're down there and we're just shooting the shit and talking about all this stuff and, and, um, talking about lines, right? Like some really specific, good race lines like okay. that most people don't know are there in Baja. There's a little bit of advantage to knowing where you're at. And I finally was like, are you worried about talking to me about any of this? Because Colton's racing against him and Colton and Ox were teammates and Johnny, whatever. He's like, no. He goes, I'm, no matter what happens, I'm going to either beat those guys on the racetrack or I'm not. And I was like, damn, that's a good point. So now I tell everybody good luck and I don't share all the lines with them. Then. <laughs> You're still but we weren't racing in the same class. Yeah, so, right, you know? right. But uh, yeah, he taught me a good, good lesson in being humble and accepting the fact that if you're going to win, it's going to be on you and not on not hoping they have a good day. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that, um, you know, called like a scarcity mindset. Like you're going to hold your stuff real tight to your chest and not share or not. Right. Because you don't want to let go of what you have. Sure. Yeah. To his point, it's like, Hey, the gate's going to drop. One of us is getting there first. Right. I either get it done or, or I don't. Right. So he's a pretty phenomenal human. He was, has a huge loss. For everybody. Um, where would you like to see yourself in like five years? I'm curious That's where, what, what's your long-term? Uh, right now, my short-term play is to win the ball with thousand this year, Peninsula Run. I feel like uh, in five years, I would like to see my Baja HQ shop flourishing, um, growing. Um, I like to be the best dad I can be, obviously. Um, Racing-wise, I think that um, I'm still going to be competitive. I feel like... Uh, I am getting a little older, something you have to pay attention to, but I feel like I'm a better racer mm-hmm. today than I was 20 years ago. Might come from having better equipment. Some people say it's wisdom, but I also feel like I'm faster than I was. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a weird gray area. I was looking at Ricky Johnson the other day, RJ, and he's 58, you know, I think he's right there. Yeah. Sounds right. He's a little bit older than me, and he's hauling ass. We were, 
the two of us were running in the top five or six on time at the halfway point in the race. Hmm. And um, I feel like as long as you are willing to bring everything to the table to win and you know you can win. I mean, that's a, one thing about race, race cars, racers in general. You have to know, or athletes in general, you have to know that you can win. You're not going to win all of them, but you have to be cocky enough to believe that you can win. Yeah. So at the, the start of every race, you've got to be saying, okay, I can win. This. I can win. If I do it right, I'm, I'm going to win. Yeah. And the day that I don't feel that is probably the day I quit racing. Mm-hmm. So I would like to say that <laughs> this Peninsula run and one more, maybe in three years, yeah. and maybe hang it up after that. But just remember, when it seems like a bad idea, it, it probably, probably is. is. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think I think when um, I've been thinking a little bit about it, the all-wheel drive, the, the new format that race cars are in. Mm-hmm. So we finished fifth. The three, four trucks in front of us are all Mason all-wheel drives. Very amazing race vehicle. All-wheel drive, sequential, gearbox, big block. We have a big block two-wheel drive. My truck was built 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, whatever. Their trucks are all brand new. Their trucks are $1.2 million to buy. So I think it will be, it could be the budget that drives us out and not the talent. Mm. But I've been super blessed. With, is there any way to, I mean, financially make that jump? Sell what you have? and up- We probably could. But my race engineer, my buddy Mike Kraft at FIDAC, who's one of our, our big partners, he believes we can do it in two-wheel drive. Mm. And I do too. I, this Baja 1000 is going to be 1,300 miles. And granted, the, the all-wheel drive has already won a peninsula run. But that's a lot for all those parts. Your, your odds of breaking something jump up. Double because now you have a transfer case, a front drive, hubs, mm. diff in the front. Mm. Does it exponentially take more to keep that truck living? Yeah, that's good. Now, now we lost this race this weekend by 14 minutes. That's a lot, in my opinion. But when you think about, I didn't have a great qualifying. We were there late. We can make excuses after excuses after excuses. But when I analyzed all the data and looked at it all, I still think we can win the short race too. But the long race is a better game for us, for sure. And so my partner, Ryan Arciero, has won it three times. I've won it once. And our plan is to go down there and win it again. And I have no doubt that we can do it. How good would it feel too to beat those guys on a two-wheel drive? It'd be pretty spectacular, honestly. Uh, the, the, there was a time uh, a year or so ago, we were on a podcast or we were on a, a live webcast that I was hosting actually. And I talked to some of those guys about some theories about two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive, starting procedures, stuff like that. And they basically totally disrespected me and discounted what I had to say. They like kind of did the eye roll, like whatever. I haven't forgot that. And that is driving my passion almost as much as anything. Mm. So we'll see. They might be right. They're great. They're younger. They have great cars. But we are older and wiser and have a great car. Mm -hmm. Not giving up and I'm not surrendering. Old age and treachery. That's what I'm saying. Love it. Yeah. Um, What about your announcing career? You still see any of that? Yeah, I'm in. I I love announcing. The commentating part I really enjoy. It's a matter of the, the chasing and the meetings and the traveling that doesn't really appeal to me, but they called me from Crandon. Marty Fioca called me and said, Hey, do you want to come announce? I've been there for four years now. I think, yeah, I want to come announce. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to announce. I was announcing scores races and some other stuff. 
It's just when the opportunity presents itself, so I'll chase do it. it. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call anybody up and say, hey, I'd like to do this job. But if someone's like, hey, why don't you call Cameron Steele? And then my phone rings and they say, hey, if it's if it's a good job with a good production company, has a good reason to do it, a good race, good event. Like if it has a reason to do it, I want to do it. Hmm. You know, like the Lake Elsinore Grand Prix, for instance. If you had a TV show for that and you said, hey, come announce this. I'm like, well, that's a legacy event. Mm -hmm. That's something that's like this massive thing that's happened in the history of our sport. Yeah, I would love to come do that. But if you're going to call me to announce barrel racing in the football arena, no, that, I'm not going to no? I'm not going to do it. I'll take that off my list. I'm yeah. going to call you about it. I'm in, I'm in and I will, I'll put a good effort into everything I do. I don't doubt that. Um, what about your family? You got little, I didn't realize you had such young kids. Yeah. I started, we started really late. Eight and three? Uh, 11 and three. 11 and three. Yeah. Kay and Grace. Heidi and I have been married for 25 years. We had a misfire early, which was um, tough. And, um, I think after Jeff died, I think it kind of re-inspired us to be able to share that, um, relationship. And we, one try and we were pregnant and had Kay and boom, we were parents and it was the most amazing thing. And we've chased that for seven or eight years after mm -hmm. and finally get grace by the grace of God. She is here and she's a pistol. Um, my older daughter, um, has been exposed to the off-road lifestyle. She likes trail admissions. She's been in the UTV and has a good time, but she prefers singing, dancing, and acting. Okay. And everybody keeps asking me, when's your daughter going to race? I'm like, I keep saying the day she says, Hey dad, I want to go race. Yeah. She'll go race. But if she says, Hey dad, I'm, I want to go sing and I want to have, you know, music lessons. I, I went snowboarding, even though I don't like snowboarding anymore because it hurts. <laughs> Because my daughter wanted to try it. I'm not going to poison the well on her, but yeah. she can do whatever she wants. She's, she knows her mom and dad race cars. She knows about the championship. She, she's there when people come up and want autographs and see us and all this stuff. She gets it, but it just doesn't seem like her cup of tea. Mm. But the little one, if there's a race car nearby, she wants in it. She wants to watch them. She wants to sit in the grandstands at Crandon. My older daughter's in the announce booth listening to me announce, and my younger daughter's in the stands with my wife watching the trucks go racing by. Mm -hmm. When are the big trucks coming? So it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm an older dad. Um, you know, I think if I had had kids in my 20s, I'd probably have six of them. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's an amazing ride, and I love it. It's the hardest, best job you'll ever have, Dude, which I, you can attest to. My two girls are 15 and 16, and, you know, from from – one and a half to 13 was amazing. And they're only 14 months apart. So they're basically like twins. And dude, we've hit these teenage years. And I mean, people told me it'd be hard. I'm getting it right now at 11. We're getting the preteening right now. Super oh, buddy. Buckle up. Yeah. Put okay. on your Hans device because <laughs> you're going to go end over. <laughs> well, the good news for me is every once in a while I get to leave you go to the races. Yeah. Well, I go to the fire station, but then my wife's just taking, Yeah. You know, I know. I was last taking night, grenades left and right. Last night I was just like, I'm out. The three year old, like my wife was helping the 11 year old homework, and I'm with the three year old for an hour and a half. I was like, <laughs> Can we just uh, sit down and watch TV? Can I read you a book? Can I do anything but have you yelling and screaming and running around? She wants to do something different every three minutes. Uh, yeah. Hardest, best, worst job ever. Um, well, our last question we ask everybody is how you want to be remembered in this sport. 
Um, and I guess for you, it's multiple sports. But what what kind of legacy do you would you like to have behind I, you? I would like to have a legacy that I I gave back to the sport, you know. And the bodyboarding, I I think we helped create magazine and press, and st- I stayed with the sport even though people, you know, maybe didn't believe in it. The motorcycling, I tried to do as much good as I could with as many people and organizations, and the same goes for Baja. But I want I just want to be remembered for someone that had passion for what I was doing, but was able to share that with other people. And like I said, that the tagline we came up with, share the stoke, mm-hmm. that's real for me. Mm-hmm. So I want people that, you know, when they talk about me, when I'm gone, whatever, I, I hope they're able to say, hey, he did a good job at, at sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. Whether it was a TV, or the events, or the going places, taking them, whatever it is. And that I really hope that my kids can look back and say that their dad really gave it his all. Mm-hmm. Whether it was being dad putting up Halloween decorations or racing the Baja 1000. Well, you got to show me and share Baja with me. I'm in. Yeah, I, I literally have never been down. I went to Canamar once for a JT photo shoot. Yeah. That's it. Canamar is kind of sketchy. <laughs> so It's a small area. Show me the cool stuff. I will. Right? I and, will. Uh, we do a trip every year called Baja Beach Bash. It's in July. Johnny and I host it. It's a super easy. can ride almost any bike. Okay. The off-road bike's better. I've got, I've got a beta. Four days. Perfect come down for that or if you want to just come down on one of the other trips and and feel it touch it get involved with it anytime you want anytime you have time i would love um you know little donnie myself and travis clark used to host a ride called the baja bonanza okay all three of us like came up with a plan it was a ride that uh, donnie had been doing i actually went on one of his rides back i can't remember when um with cole from suzuki and um we keep threatening to bring it back. And mm-hmm. I think that'd be a great ride. It's like a three or four day ride, Northern Baja industry base. You can call it work yeah. and go ride our dirt bikes. We, we should bring that back. And Travis Clark called me this summer. He's like, let's do it the third weekend in September. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. It's actually on my calendar, mm-hmm. but it wasn't long after that, that we were like, Hey, that's the same weekend as a super motocross in LA. Mm-hmm. So we never picked another date. Well, let's stay in touch. I don't care what it is, but okay. I, if, if I go down, I want you to be showing me. Yeah. You know that place better than the mayor of Mexico. If you come with Johnny and I and our group, well, you'll have a great time. We'll have tacos and yeah. Uh, if you drink beer, we'll drink some beer and we'll ride dirt bikes. Not at the same time. Yeah. yeah of um, course not. No drinking or riding, but we'll show you some great stuff and Thank we'll you. show you a little flavor of it and get, get to meet some of the people. The people are the best part about it. Is that right? Oh, man. Very great. They, they love off-roading. Yeah. They love dirt bikes. Not most of them. Yeah. I mean, you don't have anybody yelling at you to get off their yard. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say from my perspective, man, uh, like I said, you're the voice of ESPN to me, X Games. I, I hear, I see something, somebody doing something, and I hear your voice. Uh, and I think that's a really cool legacy because that's an amazing, um, you know, organization, what they've done. Uh, but the, the biggest thing, man, I've never seen you be rude to somebody, cool guy somebody, not have a smile. I mean, your interpersonal stuff, man, is just, it's Thank awesome. You. I appreciate right? it. I respect that more than anything, man. Share the stoke, right? Yeah, share the stoke. Thank you, brother. Thanks for coming on. I Thanks really for appreciate having me. it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Stay tuned, guys. We'll be back to wrap up the show. I want to be bad with you, girl, like we're Welcome back, everybody. 
That was Cameron Steele. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, Cameron, like I said, he and I have known each other quite a while and uh, just a great human being and really cool career path. And a lot of that stuff about how he got into announcing, I didn't know. So really fun for me to go through and, and learn some of that. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Um, and I appreciate his time. So thank you to Cameron for making the time to come in. I just want to remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel if you guys like this show. Uh, we will we put out two shows every single month. Been doing that since 2018. And uh, we used to do three, but just found it was a lot of times too much content for most folks to consume because these get a little bit lengthy. So two a month was about a, seemed like a good pace for us. So subscribe and you will get notified every time we drop a new show. We've got some great ones coming, including Larry Rossler. If you are in the off-road community, that's coming up here soon. So um, stay tuned for that. And then also, if you're looking for some riding coaching and technique instruction, go check out ElevateActionSports.com, a great group of uh, riders and coaches and mentors uh, on there putting together some instructional videos and drills and pretty much everything you need to improve as a rider and or racer. So check that out. Appreciate you guys supporting the show. Please support the folks behind us. We do a lot of curating to make sure that that all of our partners are elite products only. We're not going to steer you into something trashy. So uh, you can mark our word on that and um, appreciate you guys tuning in. We'll see you soon. Take care. The Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Yamaha. Join the Blue Crew today and take advantage of all that Yamaha has to offer, including amateur racing trackside support, awesome Yamaha contingency, Jason Rain's demos and instructional classes, and frankly, the most high-performing motorcycles available on the market today. Whether you're looking for a four-stroke, a two-stroke, a side-by-side, -side, a quad, a boat, a generator, Yamaha prides themselves on absolute top-level quality and reliability. Rev your heart with Yamaha and join the Blue Crew today. Method Race Wheels, bringing you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road for your truck, van, sprinter, UTV, or SUV. They've been dominating the Baja 500 and 1000 and every major off-road event around the world for years with high quality and performance. They also look amazing. They come in a bunch of different styles and colors for your rig, so check them out. You can get 20% off a set of wheels using our code WHISKEYTHROTTLE. No capitals, no spaces. 20% off using our code. Check them out. Troy Lee Designs is the leader in off-road motocross apparel and style. So whether you're looking for a cool new paint job for your helmet, maybe your name and number on your helmet lettered on, you're looking for new gear, you're looking for mountain bike gear, off-road gear, they've got the brand new Scout line and GP and SE models. Troy Lee Designs has it all. They've been leading this industry for decades, and they're going to continue to do it. Check out TroyLeeDesigns.com. SKDA is a moto graphics and seat covers company with several offices based around the globe. For too long, bikes and graphics have all looked the same. They just start to blend together. SKDA is working to change that. With super clean and unique design work, a bike with SKDA graphics stands out in a crowd and adds a touch of art to the world of moto. Hey, we need that. SKDA prides itself on providing premium customer service both before and after the sale is made. Visit SKDA online to view the current product range and get in touch with their team to get your bike refreshed. I want to just make a, a mention here that these guys, not only is their design way outside the box, very, very cool. They'll work with you on custom things. The, the products are incredible. Okay, they'll speak for themselves. But what's really awesome, and you'll notice this the minute you order one of these, man, they give you an email saying, hey, the product's been shipped. Uh, hey, the product is here. It landed in this spot. Hey, it's coming today. Hey, your product's been delivered. They, they're just so good about staying in touch with you and letting you know where it's at. Customer service is 100%, and uh, that's just something that's rare these days. Check out SKDA. 
here at the Whiskey Throttle Show, we're all about supporting brands that support our sport. And there's one tire company that has never walked away from the sport of motocross and supercross, and it's Dunlop. When times got tough and the economy took a crash, Dunlop stepped up and stayed with our sport to support it and the athletes and individuals that love it. Their MX-53 line and MX-33 lines absolutely dominate this sport. Every national championship at the pro level has been won in the last decade, and nearly every single amateur national championship at Loretta Lynn's has been won on a Dunlop. So if you're looking for high performance, you're looking for amazing quality, and you're looking to support a brand that never turns its back on our sport, there's only one choice for you, and it's Dunlop. Pro Circuit is the leader in aftermarket performance and quality. Whether you're looking for a little more horsepower out of your engine, some quality hard parts to improve the way your bike feels and looks, better handling through suspension or linkage or linkage arms, Pro Circuit is where you need to stop. It's your one-stop shop. You can go in there and get everything you need to make your motorcycle go from average to exceptional. Pro Circuit's got enough number one plates on their wall to side an entire home, and there's a reason for that. They're very, very good at what they do. Uh, the highest quality products with one goal in mind, and that's winning. Check out ProCircuit.com. Nihilo Concepts is leading the way in aftermarket hard parts. With their secondary on-switch device, something that was much needed in this sport, they've been innovating and bringing new products to market. Their latest is the new Nihilo Run-Cool Brake Pistons. They're designed to be stronger than stock and provide exceptional cooling performance with less brake drag. Most OEM calipers pistons are made from aluminum that just can't hold it to the heat and extreme demands of serious racing. When they get hot, the aluminum will distort, causing loss of hydraulic pressure and brake failure. Nihilo's run-cool pistons limit the area that boiling hot hydraulic fluid is able to come in contact with the piston, leaving two-thirds of the piston volume in open air with breather holes to enhance the cooling ability. It's made of a proprietary stainless blend, which is better at dissipating heat. You have issues with brake fade or brake failure, check out Nihilo Concepts among their many amazing hard parts and carbon fiber parts and titanium. NihiloConcepts.com. Seat Concepts is the leader in motorcycle saddles. If you're looking for a new cover or a new seat entirely, Seat Concepts is the place to go. They make custom seat foams catered to your height, weight, riding ability, riding type. They also have waterproof covers and, and foams that will not break down if you ride in a lot of inclement weather. And they pride themselves on being much more comfortable than OEM or any other aftermarket company. If you're looking for a new seat or a new cover, Seat Concepts, there's nothing better. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the Polaris RZR 800s, Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the... If you've got a little Grom that's looking to get started in the motorcycle world, the best way to get them going is on a Stasic bike. 
They've got multiple sizes, so from your very young Groms to those who are a little more grown up, you can start them safely. They've got controls that allow you to control the speed so he can't get going too quick. They can touch the ground. There's not a lot of noise to distract them. It's the perfect way to get your child involved in motorcycling at a very young age. And if you've got a kid who's already out ripping, there's series popping up all over. For those of you in Southern California, go to www.ameminicross.com and join their local series. If you're outside of this state, contact your local track and ask them about starting a Stasic class at your local track. Get over to Stasic.com and check out all they've got going on. Motul USA, uh, we, we lean hard on these lubricants to keep us uh, on the track and on the trail. And Motul has proven their quality over and over, uh, most recently with their Dakar win with Ricky Brabeck. Uh, they're sponsoring Supercross teams. They're diving into our sport again full full throttle and uh, we're stoked to have them on board amazing products top to bottom motul usa go check them out and finally last but not least specialized bicycles if you are in the market to start pedaling this is where you want to start uh, they've got great entry-level bikes all the way up to the cadillac the new levo um, e-bike uh, any, anything in between man it doesn't matter what kind of riding you're doing Go check out and start with Specialized. Don't waste your time on something that's going to break. The derailleur's not going to shift after a couple months. Get something quality. Uh, these guys make it. Specialized leads that industry. Thanks for watching and listening to the Whiskey Throttle Show. Be sure to like and subscribe to get notified when new shows go up. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And visit whiskeythrottlemedia.com for additional content.